Um, good day, everyone. I welcome you to the live stream dialogue between Venezuelan, Syrian, and Iranian socialists. Um, this is an online live stream, so you can always raise questions um, on the Facebook page, on the Alliance of Middle Eastern and North African Socialists Facebook page. Um, I first introduce the panelists, and then I will say a few words about how to proceed after the panel. Um, so I'm happy to welcome Eva Maria, a Venezuelan socialist feminist who teaches Latin American literature uh, to high school students. She also writes and speaks about the challenges of left-wing governments in Latin America to provide, as she says, a truly de democratic and emancipatory socialist alternative in the region. Um, then uh, Simon Rodriguez, a Venezuelan political activist, alternative uh, journalist and musician. He's also founder of the and coordinator laclasse.info uh, um, and currently part of the editorial committee of venezuelanvoices.org. He's also co-author of book, Why Did Chavismo Fail?, and author of hundreds of articles translated into um, different languages, member of the Socialism and Freedom Party in Venezuela, and uh, part of the Venezuelan section of the International Workers' Unity Fourth, uh, Workers Unity Fourth International, and former congressional can candidate in 2015. He has also worked with the Unitary uh, Federation of All, Work All Workers of Venezuela. Um, then I welcome Yasser Munif. He is a well-known Syrian um, activist, assistant professor at the Institute of Liberal Arts and Interdiscipli Interdisciplinary Studies. Um, and his forthcoming book is about Syria, the politics of death and grassroots struggles. Um, Joseph Daher couldn't join us, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so we hope that in future panels, Joseph will be part. It was very sudden that um, he couldn't join and he uh, sent his apologies. He really wanted to be part of the panel. Uh, Frida Afari, um, who has a philosophy MA. She's also a librarian, translator, and producer of the Iranian Progressives in Translation. Um, you find the, the, the website under iranianprogressives.org. And she's also, of course, member of the Alliance of Middle Eastern and North African Socialists. She has published articles in and Persian on the Middle East, uh, Marxist Capital on Marxist Feminism and Marxist Critiques of State Capitalism. She has also taught uh, community classes on the 150th anniversary of Marxist Capital and Socialist Feminism. Um, and then last but not least, Sina Zekawat, uh, an anti-war activist and member of the Alliance of uh, Middle Eastern and North African Socialists. And he has written articles on the student movement in Iran and solidarity and on solidarity with uh, Syrian revolutionaries. Um, I also would like to thank Isabel Barter and Fatima Masjedi who helped us organizing this event. Um, and also new, uh, I mean, um, regarding technical issues, uh, a lot of different uh, efforts for organizing uh, this event. We are very thankful for that. And also new politics for helping us to publicize this event. Um, 
then I guess that we could start, or before we start, um, important is that after the panel ends and all questions have been raised and um, also um, panelists had the uh, uh, time to respond to the questions and discuss them, we will have a Q&A. Um, so, um, different um, questions can be raised on the Facebook page. So you can send your questions to the Facebook page and then they will be directed to me as the moderator and I can raise them here. And you can decide if you want to uh, also um, put your name and maybe the city where you, where you live at the moment or to introduce yourself. Um, so yeah, we will be happy to have the Q&A after the panel and we can start with the panel now. Um, so I raised the first question. The, que the first question will be um, the attitude of the majority of the left uh, toward the Syrian uprising of 2011 and the mass protests opposing the governments in Iran and Venezuela has been to side with the governments as so-called anti-imperialist. Um, and the question would be, what do you think is the economic political and social nature of each of these states. And um, you can decide who would like to start, maybe Eva Maria um, or Frida. I'm happy, I'm happy to start. Okay, thank you, Eva Maria. Um, okay, so first, thank you so much for inviting me and I'm gonna be reading uh, from an answer that I already drafted. So I'm sorry if it looks a little strange. But um, yeah, first, I think we should start by the fact that Venezuela is a capitalist country and it's not, it's not a socialist country. Um, there are state and privately owned companies in the very basic sense of, of what uh, capitalism is, right? Um, dependent on the logic of capitalist exploitation to make profit and function in large part ineffectively. Um, there are workers and bosses and the bosses are in charge. Whether these bosses are working for the state or for a private company, the fact is that there is no shared ownership of production in Venezuela by its workers. Their labor depends on meeting the bottom line profit. It's also not anti-imperialist if we consider anti-imperialism to be the fight against the domination of some states over others in an ongoing capitalist world war. The increase in investments from China, Russia, and Turkey in Venezuela come at an economic and political cost greatly affecting national sovereignty. Maduro, the current president of, of Venezuela, um, argues that there is such a thing as good governments and corporations to ally with and then bad ones. He claims, for example, that China is involved in Venezuela's economy as a socialist ally and not a contender in a global imperialist rivalry. But if we understand socialism as a project of liberation for all oppressed and exploited people, we can agree that China is not a socialist country and its government's interest is in Venezuela are not disinterested, but very much beneficial to their country's wealth and geopolitical um, maneuvering. And then socially, uh, Venezuela is, is a country facing its worst economic crisis in its history, its modern history, with an increasingly impoverished population. Um, and, and to be clear, Latin America is, is the most, it's been claimed to be the most unequal region in the world, and Venezuela has been proof of that um, for the entirety of the 20th century. Before Chavez, over 70% of the population was, was poor. Most of the nostalgic posts you see on social media about the Venezuela of before are mostly from rich and middle-class Venezuelans who saw their tiny little world as the reality of the majority. 
What's different now, however, is that the political situation has made the economy so unstable that the salary of most people cannot cover basic needs anymore, not even the, the class that, that used to be able to do that. Um, this means that the, the poor are even less able to provide for their families and the middle and working classes have to figure out alternative ways such as the black market or literally leaving the country um, to keep uh, a comfortable life. The latter is the sector that we see leaving Venezuela in mass since 2016. And to all of this, we have a government who denies the reality and celebrates the successes of their supposed revolution as if rhetoric was everything you need to be a socialist. Um, so that's that's what I would like to provide for, for this answer. And I'm, I'm looking forward for what Simone has to say and to add to this. Yeah, it would be great if Simon could just uh, continue and um, respond to this question to stay in the region. Well, thank you very much for everyone uh, joining uh, this um, conversation. Very important uh, for us in Venezuela to be able to uh, talk with activists and with people interested in, in what's going on in our country and also to hear from activists from the Middle East and uh, other regions. Because in, in many senses, we are facing um, struggles or, or participating in struggles that have uh, a lot of things in common. And one of the things that uh, we, we have to, to face, uh, besides the fact that we are um, confronting, uh, fighting against the very authoritarian and, and repressive regimes, is the fact that uh, most of the left in, in the international arena has uh, rather sided with uh, these, these capitalist uh, regimes such as uh, the one in Venezuela, uh, Iran or Syria. Uh, for us, it has been uh, very important to be able to um, express solidarity with uh, the struggles in Syria and Iran um, because these regimes, which are allies to, to the, the Venezuelan regime, uh, in, in uh, many senses, receive uh, the, the same response from this majoritarian uh, left. And we think that the mistake is to uh, reproduce this logic of campism, which was um, common to the Stalinist uh, left uh, for decades. Uh, so then there would be some sort of progressive camp, uh, anti-imperialist camp, uh, represented with, by any regime that is not uh, aligned with the US government. And then um, it, almost anything can be forgiven to, the, to these uh, dictatorships. Uh, coinciding with, with what Eva Maria has, says, uh, has said, I want to, to stress uh, some facts in order for people who listen to us to, to understand uh, the, the nature of this regime. Um, on the economic sense, it has used the oil wealth to provide huge subsidies to the private sector. It has uh, given a, a huge amount of wealth through uh, giving uh, cheap dollars, cheap oil dollars for imports. And this has been a mechanism for the largest uh, flight of capital in relation to the size of the economy 
what has happened in Venezuela. So it basically it's a government that, that uh, transpasses, that, that gives uh, the oil wealth to the private sector. Uh, the oil industry is in the hands of mixed enterprises where uh, big oil companies such as Chevron from the United States and a, a huge array of, of big companies are participating. So in, in no way uh, it can be described as anti-capitalist. Uh, also, it has a, a very heavy uh, participation of um, the, the military in the state apparatus. Uh, this military corporation has nothing progressive about it. Um, the Minister of Defense, for example, was trained in the School of the Americas in the United States, which is infamous for its training of uh, military torturers and, and uh, uh, these military uh, people uh, linked to the, to the traditional Latin American dictatorships. So I think that uh, the criteria should be not to take at face value what the Venezuelan government says, but rather to judge uh, the discourse, the official discourse of the government in light of what is happening in the economic and social uh, uh, reality of Venezuela. And that would be uh, the, the, what we, do, uh, we would ask for any uh, activist, uh, especially on the left, um, in order to, to have a very honest approach to what is going on in Venezuela. Thank you, Simon. Um, Yasa, can I ask you, what do you think is the political, economic, and uh, social nature of each of these states? Panelist, um, and I agree that uh, this conversation is uh, extremely important to, to have in the midst of uh, the revolt and, um, and the revolution and also counter-revolution that are happening in different parts of the world, the Arab world. Uh, Iran and, um, and Latin America uh, with Venezuela. Uh, and I do agree with um, uh, what has been said about the international left that um, there was a lot of disappointment. Uh, one would have uh, expected support from the international left. And yet uh, what we saw was a very Eurocentric, Americanocentric understanding of international politics uh, and most of that left, unfortunately, views um, politics in other parts of the world through the lens of U.S. foreign policy or Europe, uh, European foreign policy. And as such, the enemy of my enemy is uh, consequentially my, my uh, ally or my friend. And so they decided to side with dictators and authoritarian regimes. And one would have expected that in the past seven or eight, year, eight years, they would have at least uh, put some effort to understand the complexity in those regions, learn about its complex history, understand the class politics and the political economy, whether in Syria, Iran, or elsewhere. Uh, but yet, um, they keep uh, with the same kind of very uh, binary kind of politics without any deep understanding. And uh, as, um, as was suggested earlier, a very compassed uh, pers perspective on, on these questions. So uh, let's review very quickly some of that history, the political economy and the politics uh, in, in Syria. Uh, the old Ba'ath uh, built its legitimacy in the 1960s through land reform and land uh, redistribution. 
which was a major achievement uh, because of the landed oligarchy uh, in, uh, in the 19, earlier, in the 1940s and, and 50s, they were all powerful. And so the Ba'ath came and redistributed some of that land. Unfortunately, early on, very early on, uh, the Ba'ath loyalists benefited most from, those, uh, from that land redistribution. Uh, and uh, the, the land redistribution and the land reform ended in 1970s. So it's, it began in the, in the early 1960s. It ended in 1917 when Assad uh, took power. And there was a counter-reform and, um, and uh, redistribution to the, the powerful and uh, the oligarch of, of that land. Um, the Assad regime also built some dams for, uh, to provide electricity to many villages and also to provide water for irrigation. Uh, it subsidized some of the main uh, commodities like rice and wheat and bread uh, and sugar and, and so on. Um, it nationalized some important uh, institution, banks, and uh, important industries, and, and so on. And uh, again, unfortunately, uh, most of that was reversed uh, after uh, Assad uh, took power. There was two branches of the Ba'ath Party, the more radical, more leftist, more progressive, that was sided, uh, sidelined and uh, put in prison when, uh, when Assad took, uh, took power. And so, uh, with that access to power with, with Assad, um, the, the politics of Syria was built on basically the security branches, four of them, uh, all powerful, and uh, a consequential army that was used for internal uh, repression, never for, uh, for wars against um, the, the enemies of, of Syria, and also for repression of Lebanese and Palestinians in, in Lebanon. Uh, those were uh, the two uh, uh, instances when, when the uh, army was used in, in Syria. And um, the Assad regime, whether the father or the son, imposed the politics of fear on the, politi on, on the population. They suppressed politics entirely. There was the politicide. Uh, no parties were allowed to operate. Leftist groups were completely dismantled. Union were dismantled in the 1980s when they tried to push back uh, against those violent and repressive um, policies of the Assad regime. And since the 1980s, uh, they were replaced by loyalist, uh, Ba'ath party uh, members who uh, take their orders by, from the party and, and um, implement those orders. And so it's, again, it's surprising to see some leftists um, trying to uh, follow the the activities of unions in Syria and trying to understand what's happening in Syria, not understanding or um, uh, uh, understanding the, 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 the formation of those uh, unions or how politics operate uh, in, in Syria. So Assad operated in a number of ways, uh, at times building different coalition with different groups, ethnic, uh, social, religious, and putting some groups against, other, against others. So for example, he used um, Assad, the father and the son, used tribes, different Arab tribes, against the Kurds, against the Druze, and against the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1980s when they uh, crushed the rebellion in, in Hama and, and uh, Homs. He brought uh, the tribes from other regions to, to press, repress them. He also used the Alawite and other um, religious group against uh, the, the um, Sunni. Uh, father and son used the countryside against the city. And oftentimes they deployed the army against Palestinian and other groups. Um, the father and son uh, subsidized and funded the Salafists um, against the, Sun the Sufi uh, groups and against secular groups. 
And so this logic of um, the logic of maintaining power at all costs was the main reason for um, implementing those genocidal policies of, of the Assad regime. Uh, and he was able, both of them, the, the, the father and the son, to build a clientelist politics um, through um, the, the funding of the oil in the 1990s. Uh, but that was not possible anymore um, in, the, in the later uh, period, 1990s. And they shifted toward the neoliberal policies um, because of that. And um, privatization of major industries and end of subsidies and um, selling many uh, state enterprises to um, loyal party members and uh, the, uh, the neoliberal class. Um, and he also implemented a counter reform in, in um, agrarian counter reform and uh, ended some of uh, the land redistribution. So that's what the uh, Syrian regime represents, and that's how um, that uh, complex history uh, developed in the past 30 to 40 years. Thank you, Yasser. Um, I can see that Joseph Zahir uh, was able to join now. So maybe if uh, Joseph is fine, um, he could be the next one to respond to this question. I just, um, give me one second and I introduce Joseph. Um, so Joseph Zahir is an academic and socialist activist. He's also the author of Syria After the Uprisings, The Political Economy of State Resilience. Um, and the author of Hezbollah, The Political Economy of the Party of God, um, and the founder of the blog, uh, Syria Freedom Forever. So yeah, Joseph, the question is now, um, so I just explained the attitude of the majority of the left toward the Syrian uprising and the mass protests opposing the governments in Iran and Venezuela um, has been to side with the governments as so-called anti-imperialist. Um, and what do you think is uh, the economic, political, and social nature of each of these states? Uh, first of all, please uh, excuse me for being late. Uh, and thank you for the organization of this uh, very important uh, meeting. So first of all, I think that uh, we have to, to analyze each kind of state uh, whatever its uh, discourse towards foreign policy is, what is the, the policies of these states regarding its popular classes? What is the social nature of these states? And this is how we analyze and how we, as progressive, uh, position ourselves towards these states. Whatever the state might say against particular Western imperialism is not our key analysis or our key um, entry to position ourselves regarding these states. And when we see these states, what we can say is that their policies against uh, popular classes is quite negative at different levels, obviously. We have to acknowledge that there are different levels when it comes to Venezuela on one side or uh, regarding the, the same regime on the other side. This does not mean that these regimes serves uh, the popular classes or the interests. And uh, Yasser explains very well how in the past few decades in Syria, for example, uh, the Assad regime, this patrimonial and capitalist state, has been uh, implementing policies um, against the interests of the vast majority of the popular classes. I would say even among what is considered 
as its so as its popular by popular basis, which is different as a social basis. Among its popular basis, you might find certain amounts uh, of sectors of the society of Syria that might support the regime. But if we look at actual practices of this regime and its policies, it's against their interests. Um, and um, especially if we look at the beginning of the 2000s uh, in Syria, this regime has been implementing increasing neoliberal policies, uh, impoverishing laxation of the population. If at the beginning of the 2000s, the level, the, the, the level of uh, poverty, uh, crude poverty in Syria was around 14%. In 2000, this level increased to 34, 33%. Uh, just before uh, the uprising, while 30% of the Syrian people were living just up above this level of poverty. So nearly 60% of the population living at levels of poverty. Uh, today, what we've seen uh, in the war in Syria following the, the Syrian uprising and the revolutionary movement, how it was crushed, the, the regime did not stop its neoliberal policies. On the opposite, following a regional trend, uh, in the Middle East and North Africa, promoting uh, not only neoliberal policies, but privatization of the economy, notably through uh, PPPs, public-private uh, partnerships, uh, structures. And in 2016, a new economic strategy has been implemented in Syria, announced that replaced the, the, all the, the former social economic mar market that was already um, concentrating on private accumulation and privatization of the economy. So. Now, every sector of the economy of Syria, except the oil sector, is open um, to private investments, which was not the case prior to the uprising. So we can see um, a deepening of previous um, economic strategies. And usually throughout the world, um, war are used by the ruling classes to deepen neoliberal policies. We've witnessed this in Iraq after 2003 and with the new leadership, a sectarian uh, leadership, which witnessed this in Lebanon after the, Lebanese, after the end of the Lebanese civil war or the official end of the Lebanese civil war. And we're witnessing this today in Syria. It has two, uh, two main objectives, obviously economic objectives for the chronic capitalists and the ruling classes to accumulate private capital, but also because of the nature of, of the states in the region that are mostly patrimonial, where you have nearly a privatization of these states with the concentration of economy, politics, and uh, military in the hands of a particular family or kinship networks, it also strengthened uh, the patrimonial nature of the state. Um, so this is also a major difference, I think, when you look at the Middle East, the reinforcement and strengthening of the the patrimonial through neoliberal policies. And what is interesting to see throughout history is that when you see the international financial institutions or large sectors of academics in the beginning of the 90s, the so-called you know, end of history of Fukuyama, etc., saying it's the end of history and through neoliberal policies is gonna bring democracy, the exact opposite happened in the Middle East. You had the strengthening of authoritarianism through neoliberal policies, no kind of independent middle class being built, or et cetera, 
quite on the opposite. And this is also a lesson to take into account, I think, outside of the Middle East or South America region as well, is that even in so-called Western liberal democracies model, you have um, a limitation, a deepened limitation, limitation and reduction of democratic freedoms. We are witnessing this, I think, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, neoliberalism also brings deepened forms of authoritarianism. In France, this has been witnessed with the repression against the Gilets Jaunes and other examples can be seen. So uh, I've been a bit long, but to, to end like this, I think these states, and this is the main position that we have to, to consider, where do progressives position themselves when popular classes are mobilizing for more democracy, for more social justice? Do we believe that the foreign policy of these states is the most important? Do we believe that geopolitical uh, division or confrontation between capitalist states is where we should stand? Or do we stand with the popular classes expecting improvements in their daily lives? And this is where I think we should be. Thank you. Uh, Frida Joseph said standing with the popular classes should be uh, the main, I mean, field in which the international left should move. What do you think about this question and the nature of um, the state of Iran, for instance? Yes, I totally agree. And if, if, you, if that is our standard, then the Iranian state certainly does not stand with the popular classes. Um, I would characterize the Iranian state as a militarized state capitalism, which acts as a sub-imperialist power in the Middle East region. In many ways, it's a continuation of the general direction of the economy of the previous Pahlavi regime. In other words, a statist economy characterized by the unity of industry and the army. Um, you can say that after the Iran-Iraq war, as long as the oil income was plentiful, the regime spent more on building infrastructure, health education, and giving benefits to a portion of the population uh, that abided by its fundamentalist ideology. However, over time, more and more of the oil income has been going toward militarism at the expense of the extreme poverty of the masses. So uh, um, some analysts speak of Iran as having a dual institution of authority, that is the government of Rouhani versus the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or I IRGC, which is under the direction of Ayatollah Khamenei. But the facts state otherwise. 80% of the Iranian economy, which consists mainly of oil and gas, telecommunications, automobile production, is under the control of the IRGC which is Iran's de facto military and principal employer. Industrial and manufacturing production in Iran has been mostly conducted in relationship to military industries, communications, and non-military industries, such as automobile production are still related to the activities of the military. So when we can argue that the IRGC is Iran's de facto state. It's a force for repressing labor, youth, women, and oppressed minority struggles inside Iran. It conducts Iran's military interventions in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, either directly or 
uh, is through either directly or through its Afghan and Lebanese Hezbollah militias, which are paid by the Iranian state. Although President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif and other members of the government and the parliament have some differences with the IRGC and the Supreme Leader Khamenei, they have not challenged Iran's military intervention in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen. In fact, Rouhani and Zarif and other officials of his administration and leaders of the IRGC have had multiple meetings with Putin and other officials of the Russian government concerning the continuation of Iran's intervention in military intervention in Syria. Last year in a public speech, Rouhani had stated that Iran's strategic borders are the Indian subcontinent on the east, the Caucasus in the north, the Red Sea in the south, and the Mediterranean in the west. So it can also be argued that although Iran is an authoritarian Islamic fundamentalist theocracy pursuing Shia expansionism, its military interventions in the region cannot be explained only by theocratic adventurism as, as some would like to call it. Up until the 2018 withdrawal um, of the US from the nuclear agreement uh, with Iran and the imposition of severe sanctions which have destroyed Iran's economy, Iran had the second largest economy in the Middle East region after Turkey, and thus saw itself as a contender against Saudi Arabia for control, control over the region. The Iranian regime still hopes that through reliance on China and Russia, it will be able to pull itself out of the current crisis and continue to compete as a regional superpower. Also, since the 1979 Iranian revolution, and um, Ayatollah Khomeini, or rather I should say, however, since the, uh, since the 1979 Iranian revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini and his followers, who subsequently established the Islamic Republic, have used an anti-imperialist discourse to destroy any progressive and revolutionary opposition to the repression and to co-opt part of the Iranian and global left. So to the extent that the Iranian regime is against US imperialism, it is because it has its own capitalist and Persian Shia nationalist ambitions. Its anti-imperialism is a counter-revolutionary one. Thank you, Frida. Um, so now I would also ask, uh, I would also like to ask Sina to respond to that same question, the nature of the state of Iran. Yes, thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Farida, and everybody else. Um, uh, well, I'm gonna uh, mainly um, support like what Farida said, but I'm gonna give a bit more additional also context. Um, the current Iranian state uh, or the Islamic Republic originated as a, a counter-revolutionary force during the 1979 revolution. Um, this, um, in other words, the Iranian state is a counter-revolutionary state which came to power not through popular or revolutionary consent, as they claim through their propaganda, but through a process of mass violence and bloodshed against all other factor, all other actors of the 79 revolution. These actors were students, were women, there were the minority uh, communities, um, the Kurds, the, um, the Azeris, the Arabs, these were, and also the leftist uh, forces within the country. These were all actors of the revolution, which the 
Islamic Republic had to get rid of and through any means necessary, which was bloodshed and violence. So at its very inception, the state has used mass violence as a tool of governance. Uh, this basic fact is uh, something which has always been absent in mainstream narratives of Iran, and of course, from narratives of the Western so-called anti-imperialists. Um, um, there's an Iranian political economist um, thinker called Parviz Sadaqat. He uh, describes, the, he explains how the new liberals economy of Iran differs. So when we call the Iranian economy neoliberal, the people usually imagine Western neoliberal economy. Uh, they imagine uh, Margaret Thatcher, for example, system, but or um, neoliberal system even in Latin America um, are di different from the neoliberal system that Iran has established. In, in Latin America, there was a debt crisis and that debt crisis has led to constant um, privatization and giving away on of people's of countries resources to external foreign powers but in iran however um because there's always been oil so oil has been a major uh, um, source of of stability for the iranian state and less debt foreign debt so iran's neoliberalism is kind of very internal and independent form of neoliberalism um, yet, like all other neoliberal systems, Iran's neoliberalism relies on constant disposition and deregulation of economy and also the war on public resources. So even though after, after the revolution, the government, the state did provide a degree of development in rural areas, in periphery areas, but the main form of uh, economic development more or less remained the same as the monarchy system, as also uh, Farida referred to. And this monarchy system of economy is extremely centralized and classist uh, and clientelist economy. So this remained more or less the shape of it remained the same. Um, so isolation of Iran's economy from the global Western economy, let's say the World Bank and all this structure of the global economy, has not resulted in an absence of internal class war on public uh, welfare. So even though Iran is isolated from global economy, this doesn't mean that it hasn't developed its own uh, new liberal, uh, internal new liberal system that is constantly stealing from the people and uh, privatizing. Um, so as also Frida mentioned, uh, currently, Iran's economy is primarily structured by a growing network of private banks that are connected to the revolutionary guards, the CEPAL. And these network of bankings uh, operate as a kind of bypass for the sanctions, for the Western sanctions. And the centrality of the CEPAL or the revolutionary guard in Iran's economy also means that uh, as an, they're a military entity. So they see military and military conflicts and war as an opportunity for producing capital, surplus value, growth, and expansion. So for the for SEPA, militarized conflict is a, an investment opportunity. They grow based on constant external uh, conflicts, like in Syria, and like the, 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 the reconstruction deals that they're trying to get out of Syria right now. This is they've been calculated. This has been calculated. They didn't go into this war. Uh, blindly they're, they're actually very 
firmly planned this from advance that we go, we ruin their country, we kill the revolution, and now we're going to invest on the reconstruction, just like what US did in uh, Iraq. Um, so the sanctions, the US sanctions uh, have affected uh, back the Iran's banking system and oil exports. They have been very um, hitting the poor and the working class. But we really need to, and, and they must be resisted, the economic sanctions, and we never support these economic sanctions. But we need to acknowledge that 40 years of uh, channeling of national economy towards na the survival of the state, wherever it's proxy wars abroad or war on internal wars on minorities even, uh, this has basically paralyzed economy, uh, Iran's economy. So... It's not just external economic uh, sanctions, but also 40 years of internal war on people's economy, which has just created this misery right now. Um, thank you, Sina. Um, I would then go over to the next question and ask uh, Eva Maria. So um, what do you think are the progressive and revolutionary, revolutionary forces? in, for instance, Venezuela, um, and how can they be helped? The question goes to each panelist, but um, starting with, again, Venezuela and Eva Maria, if that is okay. Yeah, of course, thank you. Um, yeah, this is probably the hardest question for me because I don't actually live there right now. And I'm gonna let Simon take the lead on this question. But the things that I'm seeing um, is, many things, but one is a renovation of what the opposition forces might be against the Maduro regime and the US-led opposition parties, which has been like the main um, voice and face of the opposition for the longest time. Some revolutionary groups have formed and dissolved in this last 20 years of Chavismo, all trying to navigate very new and complicating waters uh, for the left. We have to remember that really before Chavez appeared, Venezuela was a country people could barely locate in a map, honestly. Like I lived in Venezuela, in, in Spain for a long time and uh, people really did not know where Venezuela was until uh, Chavez came up. Once Chavez came to power after a decade of harsh neoliberal policies and a growing discontent with the two-party system limited to the interest of businesses and the rich, the entirety of the Venezuelan left tuned in joined the different grassroots movements emerging from everywhere, and the world started to pay attention. The failed 2000 coup against Chavez strengthened the overall turn to the left in Venezuela, both from below and from above for um, a second. Um, in 2005, he announced his project to be a socialist one. Um, people might have heard like his phrase, the socialism of the 21st century, which was adopted um, as, a, as a phrase um, by other um, other governments in the region, one that would be built democratically and not through imposition, or at least that's that's what he he said. Um, however, the next step became the opposite. The government, instead of being pushed from the movements from below, started to control these movements through the state machinery. In 2007, Chavez called for the formation of PSUVE, um, a party that he said needed to involve the whole left to fight for socialism under one direction and one banner and, and, and one man, essentially, right, Chavez. Um, this call was widely successful and it honestly became very hard for the independent left to make itself heard 
and relevant within this new context. The grassroots movements that had been developing got sucked into the bureaucratic structure or pushed out of existence, making critical debate, I think, a very difficult task. Now we see a government in complete crisis with a tiny independent left, but Simon will be able to talk more about what this independent uh, independence looks like and how it can grow or maybe how it's actually grown. Um, but to get back to the renovation that, I, that I'm seeing, I think we do see new social organizations forming and the development of independent campaigns for women's rights, indigenous rights, LGBTQ rights, and eco-socialism, among others. On the eco-socialism side, which I think is one of the strongest and obviously linked with indigenous rights um, movements right now, I suggest everyone check out the work around El Arco Minero. Um, and I can maybe leave some information um, on the Facebook page. We also see strikes in the medical and transportation systems that these are very recent, um, as well as mass anti-government marches that involve a mixed bag of ideologies. It's hard to see that because the face of um, all of these marches against the government are very much from the typical right-wing Venezuelans or like just even like just middle-class Venezuelans who like um, are a lot in social media and just like, um, show up to to protest um, when things affect them, but not when it affects everybody else. Um, but actually the, the truth is, is that there's been a lot of uh, different uh, levels of opposition to the government that are not what we see on the, especially in the US media, um, which, which makes for different conclusions. Um, so I will be paying attention to, to those movements. Uh, that's what I'm mostly doing right now and trying to write and interview some people, which gets to the next question around solidarity. Thank you, Eva Maria. Um, I would like to ask the same question. Um, I'm not sure if Simon is there right now. Um, I know that he had some, yeah, Simon. Uh, what do you think? Uh, who are the progressives um, and revolutionary forces in Venezuela and how can they be helped? Uh, thank you. I would like to, um, to stress, first of all, um, a description of, of what um, the, the social and political situation is right now, because we have an around 85 to 90 percent of the population opposing the Maduro regime. That means that opposition to the government is not based on the middle class. It, it, uh, it's uh, in all social sectors, this opposition, even in sectors which used to be part of the social and popular base of the Chavez government. It means uh, the indigenous uh, Pemon people in the south of the country, southeast, are mobiliz mobilizing against the government. Uh, they used to be uh, Chavez supporters. Uh, in many of the popular communities, urban popular communities, such as uh, um, uh, Petare in Caracas, uh, the government lost the last uh, uh, parliamentary elections in 2015 by, by a wide margin. Um, even in the home state of Chavez in, in Barinas, in the Plains region, 
uh, he the chavismo also lost uh, the 2015 elections so in that context we can say that even amongst uh, those who describe themselves as chavistas as followers of, of uh, chavez even amongst that sector, which amounts to 35% or so of the population, uh, opposition to Maduro is uh, more than half, right? But now um, the, the opposition cannot be uh, described as only one opposition. There are many oppositions, which includes this uh, traditional right-wing opposition. It includes the Chavista opposition and also a left opposition. Obviously, we would uh, consider that revolutionaries in Venezuela are those uh, are right now in that independent left opposition to the Maduro government. What does this mean in uh, practice? Well, it means uh, we are not aligned in any way to the right-wing pro-US opposition. But we have to struggle against very reactionary policies of the Maduro government, such as lowering the minimum wage to around $5 per month, uh, fighting against the looting of the oil and the gold and other, other mineral resources in the Orinoco oil belt and also the Orinoco mining arc which are two huge uh, territorial strips of the country, which make up for more than 15% uh, of uh, Venezuelan land, actually. This huge strip in which uh, huge amounts of resources are given away to big corporate imperialist interests. So for us, anti-imperialism is also, uh, besides opposing US sanctions and US interference in uh, Venezuelan uh, internal politics, anti-imperialism uh, implies also to be against all of this policy of giving away uh, and, and um, having a, 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 this huge looting of Venezuelan resources which is what the Maduro government does, gives it away to Canadian companies such as Gold Reserve and the Barrick Gold, uh, all of the, the oil companies which I have already mentioned, and also Chinese and Russian uh, corporations. Um, it means also to uh, defend the, the rights of the workers. For example, right now we have a, a worker whose name is Rodney Alvarez. He has been in jail for eight years. He's a worker, political prisoner, who has never been defended by the right-wing opposition. Only the left opposition defends him. Eight years without a trial, without being sentenced or having a right to defense. Um, so these are the, 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 the sorts of things we have to, to put forward. Who integrate this uh, left opposition? Uh, my own party, uh, the one in, in which I um, do activism, which is the Freedom and the Socialism Party, PSL by its uh, letters in, in, in Spanish. Uh, also, there is a, an organization which recently uh, broke off 
from uh, supporting the government, which is Marea Socialista. Uh, there are independent unions, such as the Health Union in Caracas. Um, in the case of the oil industry workers, our comrade Jose Bodas is the Secretary General, so we are the, the uh, union opposition in, in this important uh, federation of workers. Also, um, work, uh, the, the union of uh, teachers in a Western state, which is LARA, has an independent uh, left-oriented activism. Um, there are indigenous-related uh, organizations in the state of Zulia. So it's a, a, a wide uh, array of organizations which um, have an independent position. Um, in the case of the workers' movement, there is uh, a, a front which is called Workers in Struggle, in which left opposition organizations and opposing Chavista organizations participate. We make the distinction because uh, opposing Chavismo um, or, or uh, this sector of, of Chavismo, which is against Maduro, uh, it defends uh, the, the, what they call the Chavez legacy. They consider uh, Maduro to be a traitor to, to the Chavista project. This is something which uh, we, we do not agree with because uh, we see Maduro as a consequence uh, of, of uh, the policies applied by Chavez. But anyway, um, putting those, those differences aside or, or debating them in the heat of unified action, we are participating together in this uh, movement that is called uh, Workers in Struggle. How can we be helped? Well, the first very important thing is to um, show what we are denouncing uh, to the world, uh, to show that there is, in fact, revolu a revolutionary force and, and a left opposition in Venezuela, which fights against the same uh, super exploitation, um, giving away policies, um, in fact, in, in an economic sense, pro-imperialist policies, in, in very much the same way as most of the Latin American left does in their own countries. That would be a huge uh, thing to, to do, to show that this is a reality. And the, the other thing that can be done is to participate in uh, campaigns for the freeing of worker political prisoners, uh, for the um, denouncing uh, the repression, the use of torture, the uh, all of the limitations to democratic rights in Venezuela and persecution of the left. Our own organization has eight comrades which have been killed in the last uh, 12 years or so by the, the repression of the government. So uh, it's very important to show these things and, and to participate in specific campaigns around uh, democratic rights of the labor movement, of the indigenous peasants movements also. Recently, the peasants were um, repressed in a demonstration in, in Caracas. And this is, these are the, the things that need to be shown and, and uh, that demand uh, solidarity. And in doing so, uh, the, the revolutionary forces and left opposition will be in, undoubtedly 
uh, strengthened in their struggle and, and activism. Thank you, Simon. Um, the same question goes to Yasser. Um, what, uh, who do you think are the progressive and revolutionary forces in, in Syria? Maybe you can um, start responding to the question and then later we will hear Joseph. Um, Yasser, you need to unmute your microphone. Yeah, in order to understand uh, that um, the revolutionary forces and politics in, in Syria today, I think we, it's important to go back to uh, the recent history, the 1950s and 60s in, in Syria. And one of the important features of that history, uh, 1950s especially, a uh, few years after independence, 1946, is that Syria was a place for vibrant democracy. There were political parties, there were uh, newspapers and magazines, there were political discussions, there were elections, almost free elections. Uh, political parties were represented in the parliament and there were uh, vibrant discussions and debates about Palestine and Arab unity and uh, the faith of Arab communism and socialism and uh, the ways that uh, land reform and agrarian reform could be implemented and so on and so forth. So that's one thing that is extremely important that was happening in the 1950s. The second thing is uh, the political coup. Uh, since independence in 1946, again, uh, there were a number of coup, military coup uh, in, in Syria. And I think uh, Syria held the record uh, in, uh, in those 25 years from independence to 1970, when Assad took over again through a military coup, um, uh, almost like a peaceful uh, military coup. Uh, and uh, historians um, don't necessarily agree on the exact number of coups, depending on the way that they view them or classify them, but it's between 15 to 19 coups. Um, and so it's in that context that Assad, the father, took, uh, took power, and he had to face those two problems. How do prevent, to prevent another military coup, and how to undermine political democratic spaces uh, in Syria to prevent the, their uh, re-emergence. And I think one of the most important institution that uh, the Assad family uh, or regime uh, built was the prison. Uh, I think uh, in many ways, uh, many Arab countries um, have that in common, but uh, there is this Syrian specificity where uh, politics has been completely undermined. Um, and as I explained earlier, there was a politicized um, Political parties were banned uh, and many political leaders were exiled. Uh, many of them were put in prison, Assad assassinated or put in prison. Many of uh, the party members, the leaders of, uh, of the Ba'ath party who were competing against his, um, his, uh, his power. Uh, so some of them were assassinated, others were, were put in prison and yet others were exiled. That's the case of Akram al-Hurani, one of the important leaders of the peasants uh, movement in, in Syria. And from that point on, uh, the prison became an, a, a hugely important uh, institution in Syria. Any form of dissidence or any form of opposition was faced with the potential of being incarcerated, put in prison and forgotten for decades oftentimes. And many of the people who played a major role in the revolution, secular or, or, or non-secular, uh, have spent long period in, in, uh, in, in prison between 10, 15, 20 years 
Many of them were killed under torture. Uh, some of them were released after 20 years plus. Um, and so Assad prevented the emergence of any political spaces. And the only ways that people were allowed to do some form of politics that's not necessarily perceived or understood, understood as such in the West is uh, through religious uh, spaces, the mosque and, and so on. And that's why the pious politics, I think, is very complex and important to, to understand among the popular classes. And oftentimes, opposition to other Assad uh, regime took that form and that language of the pious uh, opposition to its, uh, its rule. Uh, and Assad was uh, vehemently opposed to any uh, secular or progressive forces because they, he viewed them, father and son again, as uh, very threatening to his regime because he uh, claimed to be uh, the, the power uh, that supported the workers and the peasants, that he uh, uh, was in, in certain ways involved in this legacy of land redistribution and uh, nationalization of different institutions and, and so on. And so uh, leftists and progressive forces were uh, the one that they were the most uh, harshly repressed. And so many of them went underground or uh, were exiled in neighboring countries uh, or were put in prison. And therefore, when the revolt started in 2011, uh, there was no organic uh, leftist progressive force as we as understood in the West or uh, in Europe and in the US. Uh, but there were uh, organic forces that emerged very quickly. And I think this is extremely important. Oftentimes, people have a tendency to focus too much on the military aspect of the revolution. I think that that uh, military aspect uh, and violent aspect would not have been possible without the civilian uh, um, revolt, uh, and which is, I think, the backbone of, of the revolution. And that took many different forms. And those are the progressive forces in Syria. The people who started the revolution council, the people who were in charge of the makeshift hospital, the people who were producing the bread and so on. Those were not just uh, random institution, just doing what they did and operating uh, in a normal context. I think they should be perceived as part of the revolutionary forces. They didn't necessarily have a specific name, weren't necessarily uh, following a specific label, but yet were present and were dispersed throughout the Syrian territory and later uh, uh, in, in, uh, among the refugees. I will say a few words about the refugees. I think the refugees are playing an important role. Oftentimes they are perceived as a vulnerable population that need our help and that um, they should be viewed through the humanitarian lens. And I think this is very uh, inaccurate, very orientalist in many ways. Many of the refu refugees are, um, have been politicized, they are revolutionary. And they are the continuation of the revolution in many ways abroad in Europe and the West and, and the US and other parts of the world. They are the outpost of the Syrian revolution in many of those capitals. And they have been involved in helping the revolution in many ways uh, through uh, writing articles, through um, humanitarian effort, um, if we want to use that label. But basically, uh, um, uh, they, they are the continuation of, of the Syrian uh, revolt. And, the, and, and as such, I think, um, and they also have been instrumentalized by far-right forces in Europe and the West uh, to uh, for fear-mongering and to um, to sustain that racist politics against refugees and against black and brown people. Uh, and I think this should be uh, instrumental and central in any coalition that is built in Europe and the West, uh, anti-fascist and anti-racist uh, coalition. 
The second thing that refugees should do and are doing is uh, building coalitions and networks among Arabs and Africans in Europe and the West, uh, because I think we are witnessing uh, a second wave of, of revolt. And so it's important to sustain those relationships and make sure that uh, we prevent the isolation that we experienced in the first wave, where the Egyptians were doing what they were doing in Tahrir Square and Libyan were very concentrated and focused on the revolt and the Syrian and, and so on. And instead create uh, networks where we are talking to each other and building uh, tools, political tools and uh, media tools where we are talking a similar language and are working on one front. And finally, I think that uh, the Syrian refugees should play a major role in the second wave of um, the Arab revolt and will start, um, I suspect, in, in Syria soon. Uh, and that's gonna take a number of uh, forms. Uh, Joseph mentioned the question of reconstruction, which is violence by, any, by, other, by uh, other means. Um, and so I think in, in that regard, they will also play a major role, whether it's in reconstruction, whether it's raising awareness about what's happening in Syria, whether uh, highlighting the, um, the pain and suffering of the political prisoners in Syria uh, who are tortured, killed uh, in, in thousands. Thank you, Yasser, also for uh, speaking about the role of refugees. Um, so just repeat for the audience, I just repeat the question again, it's uh, who are the progressive and revolutionary forces in Iran, Venezuela, and those still struggling inside Syria and among Syrian refugees, and how can they be helped? So Joseph, if you want to respond to that question. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I obviously agree what uh, Yasser said, and I will only maybe come back from the, the beginning of the uprising 2011. As mentioned, there was a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say political parties, there were some very small political parties, progressive uh, actors within uh, the beginning of the uprising because of the result of decades of repression that continued with even with Bashar Assad. But you have youth collective networks that were active in the universities in the 2000s or during actually the Palestinian Intifada in Syria, uh, doing uh, solidarity work and were repressed by the regime that saw these kind of actions as threats against it and were afraid that these kind of action could turn into more global and local uh, struggle against the, uh, their own regime. Uh, and uh, similarly, so, sections of these student networks or youth collectives were active against corruption or solidarity um, humanitarian work for um, internal displaced person before the uprising following the, the, the deep crisis uh, in the Northeast. We had hundreds of thousands of IDPs moving to Aleppo or Damascus especially. So people organizing on this basis. Um, so you have collective youth networks trying to organize from the beginning of the uprising on progressive politics. This is very clear. Uh, among Syrian Palestinians, among Syrian Kurds uh, in different areas, among Syrian Arabs as well. Uh, you had, you know, groups organizing against anti-sectarianism. You had the Pulse Network, which uh, Nubid, it was a group that was active in different cities. And in the two first years, actually, the, the, what we used to call the, the, the civil movement or the peaceful movement was very strong, even with the beginning of the Military, militarization of the uprising, a lot of these groups had progressive, I would say, ideas, or progressive at least um, uh, ambitions, but they were repressed 
very harshly, first by the regime, massively by the regime until today, and lately uh, by also Islamic fundamentalist forces that raised with the militarization, with the, the regime, allowing them to, to grow against progressive and democratic forces. So today we cannot deny uh, that progressive Syria, uh, forces in Syria have been very much repressed. Uh, and this is a reality. At the same time, uh, this contradiction, maybe we can talk about it a bit later when it comes to the, the PYD or the Syrian Democratic Forces with um, a, a progressive discourse, some achievements in, in, some, some, uh, in some areas, notably when it comes to women's rights, some secular institutions, but at the same time, uh, authoritarian policies when it comes to um, political rivals, uh, some policies have to be, um, I think, uh, criticized. But um, definitely we cannot deny that the, the self-administration areas in, in the northeastern uh, of Syria has some progressive ideals with some limitations. So it's not a black or white uh, issue, and this is why you have some historic leftists, mostly from the older generation that have joined them in some kind of collaboration, even though it's mostly individuals. And obviously you have, you have sections of, uh, of older leftists or progressive actors that are trying to organize outside of Syria, notably among youth networks with progressive ideas, but again, with a lot of difficulties, people trying to build new life uh, with conditions of life that are very difficult. Um, so th there are attempts to build a new progressive framework, new ideas, and I think what is the biggest um, opportunity for Syrians today is that uh, we can build on experience that has been written, that has been registered, and this is very important. So we can build on these progressive ideas for future forms of resistance, future forms of popular struggle, because this is the main difference that we have with the older generation, uh, that led many struggles in the 70s and the 80s that were harshly repressed with the regime, most of the new generation did not, did not know about them. And you have huge histories of strikes, labor strikes, uh, uh, resistance when it comes to struggling against different forms of sectarianism, racism, divisions among people when it comes to... So I think this is our chance today for progressive networks within Syria even though repressed, even though smaller than at the beginning of the uprising, build on the experience that we have learned in these past few years, the mistakes that some of the people made, because we spoke a lot about, and it's very true to spoke about, you know, this kind of what we call version of the left, Stalinist, nationalist that allied with authoritarian regimes, but we have another section of the left, mostly liberal, that also allied with Islamic fundamentalist movement, and with very bad experience, as we can see, for example, in the Syrian uprising, uh, notably with the Muslim Brotherhood, but other forces as well. So again, there's a chance to build in for the future, but we have to be patient. This regime, all the sources, at the, all the sources, the, reason, the reasons for the people that have revolted in 2011 are still present. Absence of democracy, absence of social justice, absence of being able to decide collectively what we want to do to our future and resist collectively. 
So even though the situation might seem very, very harsh and difficult, especially for Syrians throughout not only Syria, but I think in neighboring countries, we're seeing rising, rising racisms, especially not only in Europe, but in Turkey, Lebanon against Syrian refugees. Build on our experiences of uh, progressive uh, struggles to build for future popular resistance in also progressive networks. Thank you, Joseph. Um, resisting collectively um, was the keyword here for me. What do you think about that, Frida? And what do you, who do you think are the progressive and revolutionary uh, forces in Iran, and how can they be helped? Sure. Well, the progressive and revolutionary forces in Iran can be found within the striking workers, teachers, nurses, retirees the unemployed and student youth, feminists and women who oppose the imposition of Sharia law, <clears throat> the oppressed national and religious minorities, especially the Kurds and Arabs, the political prisoners and environmental activists. In December to 2017 and January 2018, the world saw the degree of anger of the Iranian masses when for several weeks, tens of thousands of mostly working class unemployed youth in smaller cities around the country protested and demanded an end to the Islamic Republic and its military interventions in the region. Those protests ended only after a thousand were arrested and dozens killed. Since then, ongoing labor strikes and protests have been mostly centered on the non-payment of wages or the massive layoffs, However, I think it's important to know teachers have also challenged the low quality of education in public schools and have demanded high quality and free education for all, as well as the right of national minorities to instruction in their mother tongue. Militant workers and teachers such as Esmaile Bakhshi and other workers from the Haftape sugarcane factory and Ismaile Abdi and members of the teachers union have been imprisoned. Bakhshi and a young woman labor activist Sepide Qolyan were released after confessions extracted from them under torture. However, soon after being released, they openly denied those confessions and were subsequently rearrested and imprisoned. They've been accused of being communist and Marxist agents and are languishing in prison but still writing and getting messages outside to express their defiance. Women have been in the forefront of the struggle against Sharia law and the Islamic Republic's treatment of women as second-class citizens. Last year, the world saw the courageous acts of the Girls of Revolution Avenue or women who took off their headscarves in public to oppose the compulsory hijab and to demand that women have the right to choose these acts were a manifestation of 40 years of women's struggles against the Islamic Republic, which took away even the meager rights they had under the repressive Pahlavi regime. Women have continued to resist and by now form 60% of the university graduates in Iran. However, they're, they, they're, they're, they're form only slightly more than 20% of the official workforce 
and are mostly employed in the unofficial market and without any benefits. Natsrina Sotudeh, a human rights attorney who defended the Girls of Revolution Avenue, and Nargisa Mohammadi, a human rights activist who organized activities against the death penalty, are two prominent feminists currently in prison. Harvina Mohammadi, a worker feminist and labor leader, was recently released from prison on heavy bail, but has been called for questioning again. Other feminist political prisoners include Zainab Jalalian, a Kurdish activist, Atena Daemi, a children's rights activist, Sanaza Alahiri, a socialist feminist, co-editor of a youth and labor rights journal, these are just a few of the women in prison, not to mention the Baha'i and Sufi women of religious minorities, uh, those who are not known as, or, or those who are not known as feminist activists, but are in prison for fighting abusive husbands, and those who are out of prison on heavy bail and could be rearrested at any moment if they openly engage in political activity. My colleague Sina Zekavat will discuss the protests and demands of unemployed and student youth, oppressed national religious minorities, environmental activists, and political prisoners. Thank you, Frida. This was already the bridge to what Sina might have to say um, regarding this question. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Frida. Do you, do you see me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yes as, uh, I'm just going to continue what Frida already started. <clears throat> One of the major revolutionary forces in Iran, just like any other country, like in Arab Spring or Sudan Revolution going on right now, is the unemployed youth, which uh, um, Frida referred to. The rate of uh, this, uh, the rate of unemployment for the youth is twice, uh, twice the rate of general unemployment in the country, the rate. So large segment of the unemployment rate in the country is the youth uh, being graduated under, either with degree or without degree uh, education into, the, and there's no jobs, there's uh, this like um, short contracts and it's very awful work conditions that uh, makes them unemployed. Um, these are really easily radicalized forces, like anywhere else. And uh, Iran is not not exception. It's like everywhere else. It's, uh, and um, they get attracted to very local, forming local committees for resistance, for organizing. So this is one of the major um, forces. And then we have this, the student movement, which traditionally has been one of the main engines of progressive change in Iran. Uh, sadly, for many, for decades, the leftist movement in Iran uh, was under the umbrella of the reformist uh, party in Iran. Um, they were basically the reformist student movement. They thought, they believed that if they support the reformist movement, they will manage to bring the change that they were um, imagining in the country. But slowly they realized that um, they're just being used as a puppet for the reformist, as a as a force, uh, as a propaganda force for the reformism. So the left has been reorganizing the student, the student, the leftist student movement has been reorganizing itself after years of oppression and now is gaining independence from the broader establishment politics. Uh, another major revolutionary group, uh, which Frida also referred to, is the national and religious minorities, which have been dealing with same uh, forms of oppression that 
the minorities were dealing in the during the monarchy monarchy time um they've been dealing with uh, extreme segregation um like language oppression and the identity of the you know any identity that does not fit into the shia persian uh, framing of the ethnocentric national state is considered a threat so they are also one of the most uh, uh, communities with, with most grievances um um, this includes the Kurdish communities, the Ahwazi Arab communities, um, Azeris, Lors, Baluchis, uh, in terms of national uh, um, ethnic minorities, but also Sunnis, Baha'is, as um, Frida referred to also. Um, they are seen as a second or third class citizens, which are easily dispossessed by the state through land theft and stealing of natural resources, which are mostly concentrated in areas where the uh, minorities are living. Um, so, like any again, like anywhere anywhere else, any second or third third class citizen is a radical uh, community. It is a potential of changing the situation in the country. Uh, another emerging new and more uh, recent dissident community, as Frida referred to, are the environmentalists. Um, Usually, the environmentalists should not be a threat to any government because they're just helping to protect the environment. However, uh, they are seen as a threat to the system because they have been witnessing and monitoring state exploitation and destruction of environment, um, which again is mostly happening in regions uh, inhabited by minority communities. Um, so these projects include dam building, uh, illegal change of land use for development, uh, diversion of rivers uh, illegally, which leads to drying out of marshlands, rise of sandstorms and droughts in like Ahwaz region, creating an ecocide basically. Ahwazi activists have been called, environmentalists have been calling an ecocide the, the level of uh, environmental destruction that they're dealing with. Um, for example, the recent floods, which affected two thirds of the country, the effect of it have been most uh, visible in these uh, regions, which again, minorities are inhabiting. For example, in Kermanshah, uh, the, the earthquake that hit um, for months uh, afterwards, they were left with no assistance by the government. Um, or again, in, in Ahwaz or in uh, Khuzestan, people after the flood, they not only they didn't get any help from the government, um, they started organizing themselves. So self-help became a form of survival for these communities. But the regime, the state started to crush these self-help natural uh, groups that came to help each other. So the state is basically doesn't want people to help themselves and is unwilling and incapable of helping the people also as a state. So basically what the state is offering to these communities is just basically slowly die and disappear. So um, another revolutionary force is the political prisoners inside the country, uh, inside the prisons. Um, even though we never usually, we usually don't consider political prisoners as revolutionary force because they're in the prison. However, they pose a great threat to the system stability um, um, and they're growing and growing, especially since the 2017 uprisings against bad economic situations. Um, 
mostly most of these prisoners don't have faces they don't have names we don't know who they are but of uh, because they're just young and unemployed youth which end up in prison we don't know who even they are it's a similar situation as syrian prisons which is masses of masses of uh incarcerated incarcerated uh, people but also there are people that we know their names and they've been activists for civil rights for women rights for labor rights um and many uh, some recently after the may 1st uh, recently um this last year's may 1st uh, people tried to organize and celebrate the international workers day and they were arrested and um, some of them are Medan Naji, Atafe Rangiriz, Marzi Amiri, Anisha Asadari, uh, Elohi. Um, but um, these people are still in prison. We don't know what they're, I mean, we know what they're, uh, the, the state tells them that you're organizing against national security and you're like, funded by you know, CIA or whatever. They, uh, you're foreign, foreign agents. So they stay in prison, but we also have uh, the. So the, the, the prison situation is really exploding right now inside Iran. Like, uh, the more the situation gets worse inside the country, the more prison population is growing. So this is also seen as people care about them. People don't leave. Iran has a very strong uh, uh, prison solidarity network. It's, it's a tradition in the country. People still come together. They hold pictures of the prisoners. Um, so even though these people are being imprisoned, but still they do pose a threat to the system from inside through hunger strike, which right now Salah Allah Yari and Amir Hussein Mohammad Ifad from Gom magazine are, I think, I think on the 18th day of their hunger strike. Um, so this is already a threat to the system from within the prisons, like anywhere else. Iran is no exception. The same way that um, U.S. prisons, um, you know, the, the solidarity is needed uh, with prisoners the same way that in, in Iran's systems are political prisoners and there is a movement around it and needs the abolitionist movement exists inside Iran also. So Iran should not be treated as this exceptional space that no, these oppressions don't exist. Israel, Iran is like any other authoritarian context. Thank you, Sina. Um, so the next question is a bit tricky. Um, and I would like to ask Eva Maria, um, why you think have revolutionary uh, socialists inside Venezuela uh, not been able to offer an emancipatory alternative uh, to all regional and global capitalist and imperialist powers, imperialist powers? nationalism, racism, sexism, and heterosexism? Yeah, that's a, a very big question. Um, okay, let me see my notes. Yeah, so I think I answered part of uh, this question within my previous answer, within the, the previous question. Um, but to recap a little bit, I believe revolutionary socialists inside Venezuela have done a lot to expose the kind of revolutionary nature of uh, the Maduro regime, and some um, even did it with the Chavez uh, years as well. But this has not yet transformed into an alternative to the government's idea of socialism because of the overwhelming influence of Chavismo as an ideological force. Um, I already said earlier that Venezuela's government is a capitalist one. 
but the rhetoric that Chavez was able to broadcast around his ideas as a socialist, humanist, feminist, etc., was louder than the reality of what was developing. And of course, also like the, the rhetoric of being anti-imperialist, meaning having strong opinions against the United States um, idea of how to run the world um, also made it um, hard to see a little bit more what was happening, really what was developing. Um, a lot of us were very excited at the beginning of this project, um, me included, even if Miley is skeptical. If you didn't join, it seemed like if you didn't join the Chavez train, you risked remaining isolated from a mass layer of Venezuelans in the early 2000s, wanting to build um, a new society, a new type of society, more representative mostly. Um, but if you got in too fast and deep into that train, um, your voice got lost in the mainstream and constructive criticisms were ignored and effectively silenced. Um, Going against the widely known and inspiring project Chavez was building was a task that some groups um, have pursued early on, like Simon was talking about too. But as of yet, it has not constituted uh, a force capable of challenging the government of uh, Maduro, or it hasn't happened yet, right? Maduro is still in power. Um, and of course, this is just so far. Things change very fast. Things are changing very fast. And uh, from what Simon is saying, the independent anti-Maduro forces um, from the popular sectors uh, seems to be um, very positive and, and effective, which is great. Um, so that I mentioned the difficulties of becoming an independent left pole in Venezuela, but I also want to address uh, head on uh, the part, the other part of your question that is also very um, big. Um, why is oppression still there? Uh, oppression against women, indigenous people, the LGBTQ community, etc. I believe the answer to that needs to be revised and discussed and discussed within the left internationally everywhere. I think we would benefit from a panel entirely dedicated to this question, actually. Um, why has the left failed to again and again, even when in power or within the leadership of our own organizations? Take the question of oppression um, seriously. Why? Why has it been so hard? Most of the organizations I know on the left, although rhetorically feminists, they keep having what I call a, a sexism exception. Um, people who are leftists that think that sexism, racism, or homophobia is not something to prioritize as much as struggles against exploitation. Um, I believe that's absolutely absurd and a mistake uh, that we need to correct in the left. And we're not going to ever win any sense of real liberation if all voices, oppressed and exploited, don't have the seat at the table we all deserve. Um, I mean, I mean, just to give an example, um, Maduro has used homophobia explicitly as a rallying point for his presidential campaign against Capriles back in 2013. There were a million things he could have used um, against Capriles, um, and that was one of, of that was one of them. Um, this should be denounced and challenged from all sectors of the left if we want to be the tribunes of the oppressed. Another major example, Daniel Ortega is, you know, he's the president of Nicaragua right now. Uh, he's a recognized sexual abuser of a minor, and yet he's the left-wing president of, of uh, Nicaragua, uh, widely supported by the international left. It is this kind of examples that need to stop if the left is to be the real vehicle 
for liberation. So I think it's just a very um, important question. Um, it's hard to talk about it. I don't hear a lot of public debate about it. I think it's one of those things that is talked about in private a lot. Um, and I think we need, we need to take it more seriously for the left to actually become as relevant as, as it needs to be. Thank you, Eva Maria. Simon, I would like to ask you the same question. Um, yeah. Yes, thank you. I recall in an article signed by this uh, philosopher, Sisek, uh, uh, he asks a similar question. He says, well, why is the alternative to Chavismo to the right? Why is there no left uh, alternative? And um, I have to answer first by saying that there is an emancipatory alternative uh, to Chavismo and to the right in Venezuela. However, uh, what we would um, need to assess is why is its influence uh, small? Why, why is it not in a position in which it can dispute power? And uh, what CISEC does is to say basically that um, it's a problem of ideology, a problem of of imagination, of backwardness of the people. And through that conclusion, he goes then to support uh, Maduro. We do a different type of analysis, a Marxist uh, analysis. And in order to understand why the left, uh, the, the revolutionary, the socialist revolutionary opposition and, and the left in Venezuela, is weak, we have to see what has happened in, in the class struggle process of the last two decades. And what has happened is that the Chavismo government has been able to uh, impose heavy defeats to the working class and uh, to the left. Some of them uh, through a process of co-optation. Eva Maria mentioned the, the creation of this uh, party, the PSUV, PSUV, uh, official Chavista party in 2007. Obviously, it was uh, an effort to uh, create a, a very corporative uh, party. And uh, coinciding with this, there was a, a process of combining co-optation Chavez even said it uh, very clearly. Those who want to have a post uh, to work in the government, they have uh, to join this party. There is no way that uh, people in other uh, leftist parties will have jobs in the government, in the state sector. This was done very aggressively, but also repression and using all of the military and administrative apparatus of the state to destroy the left and to destroy the workers' movement. We have to mention some uh, examples of this. In 2007, uh, Chavez said that the PSUV party uh, was against uh, the autonomy of the unions. That autonomy of the unions was uh, a, a form of counter-revolutionary poison. And how was this implemented? Well, the um, Ministry of, of Work, the, the Ministry of Labor, 
intervened very heavily in the internal life of the unions to avoid independent unions from being formed and to um, impose pro-government uh, leaderships in the independent unions, uh, boycotting any project of collective bargaining that was put forth by independent uh, labor uh, unions. Also repression in the, those years, 2006 to 2008, uh, there were hundreds of factories which had been occupied by the workers in uh, a, a huge series of uh, strikes and, and also some factories that were actually abandoned by the bosses were taken by the workers and the what the government did was to for one thing to extort uh, the, the the bosses to to extort them politically uh, saying that uh, this was the only government that was uh, capable of, de of dealing with uh, these um, conflicts in the in the labor sector, but also repressing very heavily the workers. There, there was this important case of this factory called Sanitarios Maracay, which uh, managed to produce more than 500 workers produced in this factory uh, with self-management without bosses, without bureaucrats, and the government uh, attacked with the military these, uh, these workers' control experience. The National Union of Workers was split through government agents in 2006. The most uh, advanced uh, regional federation of the union, National Union of Workers, which was in Aragua State, very close to the capital of Caracas, uh, the president of this regional federation was killed by hired killers uh, of the government. So it was a, a very violent process through which the government managed and Chavismo managed to uh, defeat and destroy any autonomous and independent uh, organization. In the case of the indigenous uh, movement, Sabino Romero, which was the most important leader in the, in the Yucpa people in the, in the West, state of Zulia. He was put in jail for two years from 2009 to 2011 and after he was freed because of the permanent mobilization of a solidarity movement, well two years later he was killed also by policemen of a, a municipality ruled by the official PSUV PSUV party. Um, the case of Ruben Gonzalez who is now a union leader who is uh, in jail right now for participating in a strike. He was also put in jail by, by Chavez uh, in the same period when uh, Sabino Romero was in jail. So uh, the explanation of why uh, the, the left hasn't been able to, to um, become uh, uh, an alternative uh, with the possibility of disputing power has to do with this historical process. It cannot be uh, analyzed on the level of the ideology alone. Although we have to also acknowledge that the fact that the government says it's a socialist and leftist government creates confusion. And when the right-wing opposition also insists that it's a left and socialist government, and that's why we have all the problems we have 
and all the big media repeats the same lie. Of course, this creates confusion and, and uh, problems for the left, but uh, it's very important to see in the concrete uh, historical processes where the left has, the left opposition has struggled and has been defeated. Well, there is a, an explanation as to why it is uh, very weak right now. Considering the fact that the, the most general trends of the international left, as we have already uh, stressed, is towards uh, opportunism, to, towards a, a very distorted brand of anti-imperialism, which becomes simply uh, an excuse to support this type of, this type of uh, dictatorships. Um, so th those would be some, some elements. I would stress that uh, there has been an emancipatory alternative, but its weakness can only be understood by analyze, analyzing the historical process of Chavismo. And um, in that sense, we can uh, conclude that uh, Chavismo has had a, a counter-revolutionary project in which, in a very important sense, it has had success in, in which has been to uh, destroy the labor, the, the workers' movement. That's why we have $5 minimum wage uh, in Venezuela, one of the lowest in the world, because of that defeat. Thank you, Simon. Um, Yasser, uh, Simon just explained the systematic oppression of the left in Venezuela. And you spoke about the uh, historical systematic oppression of the left in Syria. So um, maybe that is a good uh, way of understanding. But still, the question is, why have revolutionary uh, socialists inside Syria um, not been able to offer an emancipatory alternative to all regional and global capitalist and, and imperialist powers, nationalism, racism, sexism and heterosexism and maybe um, if you think that uh, it can be explained um, uh, with this historical systematic oppression or are there other reasons as well so yeah i mean there is uh, there are structural and organic it's a combination of structural and organic uh, reasons um, and i think one of the most important is uh, probably the domination of binary or Manichaean politics, uh, the either or, uh, us and them. And therefore, um, within that kind of environment uh, where the West uh, and Europe and the US produces a certain discourse about um, uh, bringing democracy and fighting terrorism and the question of development, bringing development um, and uh, economic liberation, that's on one hand. And then uh, there is a counter discourse produced by those dictators, by authoritarian regime about um, uh, independence and about uh, opposing regime change and about uh, opposing intervention. And um, it becomes very difficult for the left and the progressive forces in general to produce a discourse within that conjuncture. And unfortunately, as many of the panelists have mentioned earlier, uh, the international left, for the most part, has embraced that uh, binary discourse. The idea that uh, any form of resistance to those dictatorial regime in Iran and Syria and elsewhere should be understood um, from the entry point of uh, state rights 
and regime change and that uh, those regimes as such need to be protected um, because they are um, a threat to the US and they're, they're a threat to Europe in general. And as a result, they are our uh, organic allies uh, that's from the perspective of the international left. And unfortunately, uh, to a certain extent, the frame that, uh, that discourse of the left, many people don't necessarily have the time or uh, don't want necessarily to put the effort to understand the complexity of those uh, societies and how oppressed uh, population, the popular classes are struggling against those regimes. And oftentimes they don't have the same uh, tools uh, to, to become visible and to have a voice and to be heard, whether by the West or even by um, intellectuals who care about, um, about oppressed classes and, and popular classes in general. And yet uh, we see them siding within that uh, international anti-imperialist um, uh, leftist uh, group without questioning some of um, the flows of, of that type of discourse. So, um, and I think one important scholar, one important intellectual revolutionist uh, intellectual should go back to is Franz Fanon, uh, who alerted us very early on against that uh, binary politics after uh, decolonization. Uh, and he told us to be really cautious with uh, that binary, that it's either the decolonized or the Western powers, the idea that after decolonization, we will reach uh, emancipation, democracy and development and so on. And he was right. Uh, and in many ways, uh, what happened is colonization by other means or neo-colonization, neo-imperialism and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, we are still witnessing uh, a lot of that. So one of uh, our, um, I think most important uh, uh, objective is to break that kind of binary and create a, a third, fourth and uh, beyond alternative and show that there are other possibilities. The second thing is, I think, very unfortunate is to many of those leftist forces, many of the intellectual, organic intellectuals sometimes have a tendency to think politics through the lens of the state, the nation state. and. Anything that uh, operate outside the nation state escapes their, uh, their understanding. And therefore they don't see uh, social classes, they don't see subaltern uh, groups, they don't see people who are organizing on the ground. Uh, all they see is uh, what state, where they stand, what's their politics on this and that, um, what's their foreign policy. Uh, and this is a shortcut that is really detrimental as we can see. Uh, and this is why I think that the idea of using the state or geopolitics, which is another way to understand uh, state politics and state interest and what benefits the state, no matter where they are uh, on, on that uh, international um, landscape, uh, is a lethal weapon against social movements and groups operating on the ground. Uh, and unfortunately, it's very effective. I mean, in silencing those groups and preventing them from uh, producing uh, this different discourse that breaks that binary and, uh, and disrupt uh, the, the, the boundaries and the borders of the nation state. And this is why I want to go back to finish uh, to the refugees. I think the refugees have tremendous uh, revolutionary potential, as well as, as uh, Sina has mentioned, the, the political uh, prisoners, they have tremendous revolutionary potential with many others. Um, I think queer population and women and so on, and um, uh, minorities, Kurds and Berber and otherwise. Um, because they transgress that politics of the nation state and they transgress that politics of uh, the geopolitics and its lethal implication. Uh, and so, for example, with the refugees, um, the moment that they, they cross the, the border, 
they are already uh, questioning and disrupting the nation state and its uh, sovereignty and so on. For example, in the beginning of the revolution, there was a lot of discussion among Syrian activists about sovereignty and whether we should invite other forces and we should protect sovereignty. And that's split, unfortunately, is part of the activist community, uh, whether we should support this or that and whether we should challenge sovereignty. But their understanding of sovereignty was, I think, again, uh, state-centric. They were understanding sovereignty as represented by the state, its institution, the Assad regime, and so on. And I guess that I think there is popular sovereignty that uh, they forgot um, about and that we should develop, develop further and explain and, and theorize uh, uh, for this, the next round of, of revolt. Um, Thank you. Uh, Joseph, the same question. Um, yeah, you can continue. Thank you, Sarah. I think um, what mentioned Eva at the beginning of the discussion is key. It's about linking the issue of uh, exploitation and oppression. Very often we separate these two kinds of things while not understanding how they work together. Uh, this is, if you want, the concept of total social, um, social totality, not understanding that class is not reduced only to the being explosive as a worker, but also you have other forms of oppression that are interlinked completely, uh, whether being race, whether being you know, your, uh, um, sexual orientation, your kind of papers, your, uh, where you reside, etc. So it's having a bigger understanding uh, of where lies you know, the issue of class and the issue of how exploitation and oppression are completely linked. If, if we see the history of capitalism, and racism is completely linked. The way capitalism developed throughout the world is completely linked to, to, to racism. So I think this is a key issue until today for the left internationally, not reduced, I think, to the Middle East or North Africa or South America to, uh, to challenge with. And as progressive, we still have a lot to do. Uh, mistakes have been done. There's not enough, I think, whether theoretically or practically, things being done, even though I think there are openings that are really interesting. And, um, and this is why I think this is the, the key issue to, to answer your question and to challenge what also was mentioned by Yasser of, of binaries, etc. But um, when it comes to Syria, there's a long history, for example, among the left of uh, forms of Arab nationalism that can still be seen until today. And when, whenever forms of demands of Kurdish national rights have been raised, they have been accused of being separatist. And this is utterly reactionary. And uh, obviously it's not, uh, Syria is not the only country in this situation. You have seen Iraq, Turkey, and um, Iran in similar kind of situation. When it comes also to, to women's issue, I think not enough has been done throughout the uprising. And this is why also leftists allying whether with the, if you want authoritarian regimes, or Islamic fundamentalist forces, which are two powers fundamentally patriarchal and sexist, also denies, you know, um, women's rights and the agency of women during these uh, revolutionary processes. And this is why I always said there's a necessity for progressive and democratic forces, which in it you can find feminist groups, queer groups, queer, uh, minority national rights being raised, in addition to issues of labor and class issues being independent from the two sides of the counter-revolution that have been called the Islamic fundamentalist forces and Ancien Regime orientation. And I think without this putting forward this issue of exploitation 
and oppression bringing it together, we cannot tackle all the issues that you raised in your question. Um, and again, this is not reduced to the Middle East. It's a, it's a story, it's, a, it's an issue that is on a worldwide basis. You can see as well the left being divided when it comes to the issue of self-determination of Catalonia or when it comes to the issue of Scotland, a uh, section of the left that did not support this uh, self-determination issue or when it comes to, for example, the US, some uh, left is still having an economist perspective, even though less and less. And also what, what we can be thankful today is that you have movements, progressive movements that are bringing back the issue of exploitation and oppression together. And the feminist movement, internationally speaking, is very important in this basis. Just as Black Lives Matter as well is very important in the US, or you have forms of also uh, this kind of similar forms in France. So I will, I will finish on this. The refugee issue also is very interesting as we can see when it comes today. Uh, I just want to mention this because it's really important. You know, Palestinians being discriminated even more than before in Lebanon when it comes to workers' rights. And you have a whole movement today of Palestinians in camps and throughout Lebanon being demonstration for their rights, saying uh, we, we defend the right of return to Palestine, but that's where we defend our rights as civil rights to be able to work in Lebanon. And we see again what Yasser mentioned, breaking these kind of binaries, state sovereignties, etc. Uh, so the, and again, uh, we have to understand that our destinies are linked. The, the, the Middle East uprisings, the uprisings in the Middle East did not shake only the region, they shake the whole world, bringing about the issue of revolution. And today also the way, you know, the, 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 the if you want, the reactionary reaction towards refugees in Europe make the rise of authoritarian right. So it's very important for the left to defend an internationalist perspective that all our destinies are linked and that revolution doesn't stop at our borders. Without any kind of global solution, there's no solution for the oppressed uh, wherever. So I think this is the key issue to, to your answer, even though it's not an easy one and a lot of is still to be made, to be done, sorry. Thank you, Joseph. Frida, um, why do you think um, has the left not been, the socialist left not been able to offer an, an emancipatory alternative in Iran? <clears throat> we have lost our connection to the essence. Those of us who consider ourselves socialists have lost our connection to the essence of Marxism which is that socialism is not just about abolishing the private property of the means of production and abolishing market mechanisms. Socialism is about the emancipation of labor, abolishing alienated labor, alienated human relations. That is the key to socialism. And without that, we cannot create the condition for overcoming the objectification, the commodification of human relations which we see everywhere, whether it is in organizations that call themselves capitalist or even socialist organizations, you still see the reproduction of those alienated relations. So we have to get to the root of the problem. And I think it's very important that in Marx's writings, in the very writings, very early writings, also known as humanist essays, where he talks about 
alienated labor. In those very same essays, he says, the infinite degradation in which man, male, exists for himself is seen in the relationship to the woman as the spoils and handmaiden of communal lust. That is a profound statement. We cannot separate these two, the alienated labor, the alienation in all human relations. So um, in Iran in, in, uh, specifically, I think that suffering from that general problem uh, the left has uh, has always had a problem with limiting uh, the concept of, of of socialism to just being against U.S. imperialism. And even though we suffered greatly from it in 1979, when the left allowed Khomeini to gain power by uh, not giving enough support to the women's demonstrations against the Islamic Republic, not really support, not giving enough support to the Kurdish uprising, both occurred in March of 1979, right after uh, the revolution. Um, even though we suffered from that, we still suffer from it today, even though uh, so many socialists and leftists were massacred in, uh, in especially in 1981 and after when the counter-revolution was fully enforced by the Islamic Republic. Uh, so many went into exile, uh, either ones inside were imprisoned or, um, or killed. Uh, we still have that problem within the Iranian left, reducing everything to being against US imperialism. And specifically, I would say it's the problem of statism, limiting your vision of socialism to just having a, a form of basically a form of state capitalism with some kind of uh, worker limited or some kind of worker self-management intertwined with that but still state capitalism. Secondly, um, nationalism, strong Iranian nationalism, and that expresses itself both in relationship to the uh, oppressed national minorities inside Iran. Every time you mention the question of autonomy or self-determination, or even the question of them having the right to have their language, uh, mother tongue as the language of instruction, you're labeled as a separatist. So statism, nationalism, sexism, deep, deep sexism. And that has a lot to do with why uh, the Iran Islamic Republic has been able to stay in power for so long because it gave so many benefits to men through the temporary marriage, through getting rid of even the basic uh, rights that women had under the previous repressive regime. So that even men who oppose the Islamic Republic still benefit from it in so many ways they can, they can beat their wives, they can cheat on their wives as much as they like, they can take temporary wives without any trouble, and they can still claim to be liberal or even progressive. And yet at home, they treat their wives as sex slaves and objects and mates. Um, so we have these real, real problems in Iran, in the Middle East, all over the world. And uh, having said all of that, you can't have socialism in one country. We can't solve these problems in one country or even in the region. Uh, it has to be a global effort. If it's not a global effort, I mean, if it doesn't, write, doesn't start with the conceptual framework that is about overcoming alienated labor and alienated life and of the objectification of human beings, there, there's, no, there's no way for us to succeed. Thank you, Frida. 
So um, Frida just said um, that she sees the struggle as an international global struggle and that otherwise the struggle will not be successful. Sina, how do you see that and how do you respond to this question of emancipatory forces and uh, why they didn't uh, manage to deliver an alternative in Iran? Um, I have a little bit of a different opinion, even though I agree with that the, we, we have problems with leftism in our countries, but I would, um, I put the blame uh, of more on the failure of international solidarity um, in places like Syria, Sudan, Iran, Venezuela, the alternatives are being created right now, at least since 2011, there's been a new, new political ideologies are being created, established practice. Uh, how are they either being crushed by local global imperialist powers or more importantly, which I'm going to focus on, is they're being rendered invisible by Western so-called leftist intellectuals like Chomsky, Zizek, these people. Um, and so not, not only there has been lack of international solidarity, let's just forget, we don't, not only the Western left has not offered solidarity, um, it has actually like stood with the oppressive regime, these new liberal fascist regimes of Iran, Assad, you know, like, so in many cases, so, um, it, so the, the, the Western left has been standing with these fascist states in their battle against the popular movements. So uh, I, I personally think, um, we're becoming it's becoming a situation that the western left is the direct enemy of the popular and working classes in these countries um which they consider themselves as anti-imperialist uh, because the left has been defeated so much in its own the western left has been defeated and demoralized in its own countries disconnected from the actual popular struggles in their own countries and they feel defeated and in order to um they feel that gap of defeat they go support these fascist states of Iran or Assad to, in order to boost themselves as big again. In order, in, instead of connecting again to their own people in their own countries, like organizing properly mo labor movements, they then come support Assad and Iran or Maduro or, as to fill that gap. Um, for example, we have this uh, anti, so-called anti-war group in the US called Code Pink, which they, org they actually organize so-called peace trips to Iran and what they do is like they go meet uh, Javad Zarif or other heads of states and praise them as uh, anti-imperialist, anti-war and so this provides concrete uh, propaganda and ideological support for uh, the states that are crushing the people. So I don't think we should underestimate that, how much this propaganda works against our uh, movements. Um, I think so the idea of so because because in the west the people have not really struggled against complex forms of you know oppression they've always had the degree of uh, you know they, they they can live in their houses they can um, they can have opinions political opinions without being crushed so they don't understand what it means to live under these systems that you cannot even speak like um like you get Massacred. That's it. End of the story. So they can't even understand these kind of uh, struggles. So um, 
I think a lot of the Western left and so-called anti-imperialist left, the old school ones, they have more uh, blood on their hands than uh, they would like to admit. Okay. Um, and uh, sorry, I was just uh, with what Sina just said, I was somewhere else. I was thinking about the Western left, but um, the question about why the left and socialist forces in our countries couldn't um, deliver an emancipatory alternative, you think is only related to the Western left or you think there are also other reasons? No, definitely uh, what I mean, everybody said we were dealing with uh, nationalist left in our countries, which have been, in, um, you know, not progressive enough against racism, against sexism, or against uh, autonomy and self-determination for minorities. So this has been one of the major setbacks in our politics. Also, reformism in Iran has been a trick playing, being played against the people for a long time at being at showing itself as an alternative to this authoritarian conservative state. So we've been delayed for a long time under this reformist uh, lie in Iran. So that has delayed the program of labor alternative coming up, but now it's coming up in the last three years, it's been coming up, but it's still not being given platform in the global um, intellectual spheres or whatever in order to show itself, to represent itself. It's being because the Western intellectuals like to keep that um, intellectual hierarchy of the European uh, knowledge production, you know, it's valued more. So no new knowledge of resistance, of liberation can come as if from non-Western, non-European societies. I think this is a real, I think the intellectual war that has always been playing the Europe and the West against the global South, I think is also a key uh, factor that we need to fight. Um, I think this is our role to, to smash them intellectually so that the, what people are doing back, back home can come out, can be uh, exposed as an alternative. Sorry, uh, confusing. <laughs> Thank you. So I would um, like to ask the last question and I would um, again um, ask Eva Maria to start. Um, and the question would be, um, if you can offer a sum up on what international solidarity with the struggles that we have discussed uh, should look like and how it can go beyond uh, merely opposing US imperialism um, and various states, which kind of also relates to what Sina just said. <clears throat> yeah, thank you so much um, to everyone for this panel um, in general. Um, I think for socialists, so I think there's there's different answers depending on where you're at, but for socialists outside of Venezuela specifically, um, our most, and especially if you live in the United States, um, our most important task is to raise the flag against US imperialism and show, and show how, um, with our many historical examples, what a military intervention would mean, not only for Venezuela, but also for the whole region of Latin America. This is a step number one and the most essential one uh, for us to focus on, especially again in the United States. Um, of course, with the US sanctions that we're seeing um, only serving to increase the suffering of Venezuelans. There was even an op-ed in the New York Times uh, of all places about the actual um, logistics of how 
how this is um, making the crisis even worse. Um, but I would definitely want to add that we need to be honest about assessing the character of the Bolivarian Revolution and the Bolivarian government and not confuse solidarity with the Venezuelan people with solidarity with the Maduro government because um, as Simon was also expressing, these are two separate things. When you uh, are thinking about an 80 to 90% opposition to the government um, and you see and you see like aligning yourself with the Maduro government um, and everything he says as uh, the way to be in solidarity with Venezuelans, that's actually a contradictory um, position. The campus position in favor of Maduro's government as socialist and anti-imperialist only serves to dismiss Venezuelans grievances against a state that is failing to provide basic needs um, every single day. Um, this is not the solidarity that will win a generation of people to socialism as a project for liberation among all oppressed and exploited peoples around the world. We have plenty of positive examples of Venezuelans self-organizing at the workplace, councils, neighborhoods, um, in Bolivarian circles at the beginning, et cetera. Um, um, Simon also mentioned the uh, Pemon people as well. Um, people should, should try to, to look into what, what is happening there. We should, uh, from outside of Venezuela, highlight these experiences through our publications, translations, Panels like this, I think, are a very good example of, of solidarity, of what solidarity looks like, podcasts, et cetera. I think we have to, to extend our independent uh, platforms to uh, say our truths, because it can't be that um, the only people outside of Venezuela speaking about Venezuela undergoing a terrible time in crisis uh, is like right-wing media. Like it can't be that that those are the ones who are speaking um, about what's actually going on. We need to also um, do that ourselves with our own conclusions, which are obviously extremely different and opposite to, to what the um, mainstream and right-wing media are, are trying to, to get to. So I think we should take these movements, these collectives, everything that's going on from below and uh, what these 80 to 90% of people are doing, right? Um, and show and show them that we stand by them um, against sporting intervention and against any government that doesn't serve them. Thank you, uh, Eva Maria. Simon, um, what uh, do you think? How uh, do you think it's possible to go beyond uh, only opposing U.S. imperialism. I mean, Eva Maria mentioned how that is one of the most important um, uh, aims that any leftists in our countries should have. But um, what else um, can be done? Yes, I think that um, internationalist uh, solidarity requires basically for um, the those who struggle in, 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 in other places for things like a, a dignified minimum wage, to have a, the right to, to participate in mobilizations, to protest, um, the right to form oppose, opposition uh, parties, uh, those who fight all of the expressions of, of racism and, and uh, sexism and, and their expression in, in state policies. These activists um, 
in order for them to, to exercise true internationalist solidarity, they, they should put themselves in the shoes of uh, what activists uh, have to face in, in, in this case in, in, in Venezuela. Uh, in, in many senses, we have to uh, struggle against many of the same capitalist uh, problems, only in some cases uh, in, a, in a very different degree, but essentially the same things. I mean, we have a bourgeois government, which is uh, uh, creating a, a huge gap in, in the wealth distribution. Those who are uh, linked to, to the state, be they um, businessmen or, or bureaucrats, they are really amassing a huge uh, wealth by, by well, the, the enormous majority of the people depend on uh, what whatever whatever they can uh, get from relatives abroad. When you have five dollar wages, five dollars a month, obviously you can only buy two kilos of cheese. Uh, with that, it's not a lot. What you can do with five dollars in Venezuela, so a lot of people depend on uh, getting um, uh, getting money sent from, from abroad. Around 4 million people have left in the last uh, five years, uh, getting away from this uh, horrible austerity uh, plan administered by the Maduro regime. So then uh, I agreeing with Eva Maria, you have to oppose the US sanctions, which make things even worse they are not the origin of the crisis, but they do accelerate the, the horrible social consequences of the Maduro austerity plan. Uh, and uh, uh, also reject any intervention, the threats of military action, uh, which have been put forth by Trump. At the same time, uh, we, we reject the, the military Russian presence in Venezuela. There are hundreds of Russian troops in, in Venezuela. Uh, we reject uh, the presence of uh, these huge uh, uh, capitalist interests uh, in, in US companies, Chinese and Russian companies. Um, we struggle for the freedom of, of our comrade uh, Rodney Alvarez, who has been eight years in prison without trial. Uh, we are also trying to get uh, worker leader Ruben Gonzalez out of prison. He has been in jail for several months now for participating in a strike. We are participating in uh, mobilizations and demonstrations against the misery of, of wages. Uh, this front, which I mentioned earlier, the um, workers in struggle, is participating in these struggles. So then um, I think in a sense, uh, the examples of, of uh, Noriega, the dictator in, in Panama, who was uh, in power when, when uh, in Panama was invaded by the US, or Hussein in, in Iraq, uh, the dictator who was in, in power in 2003, they are examples of, of how can uh, we oppose military imperialistic intervention without giving support to, to these regimes. In the case of Noriega or Hussein, 
there was little support for them uh, on, on behalf of the left. And I think uh, that Maduro is comparable in the sense that he should not, uh, he, he does not deserve any support while uh, we have a, an anti-imperialist or, or an authentic anti-imperialist stance against US intervention. We can oppose US intervention and at the same time say that the workers should not have a $5 wage, that there should be no political prisoners, that uh, torture should not be used against political uh, prisoners. I mean, uh, we can at the same time oppose US imperialism and oppose this dictatorial, dictatorial uh, bourgeois regime. And I think it's uh, what should be done. Uh, specific campaigns can be um, done relating to, to specific cases, like some of the ones I have mentioned. And if, um, if, if, if it's possible, perhaps even uh, organizing solidarity groups with Venezuela, which have a perspective uh, of true internationalist solidarity. Thank you, Simon. Um, through international solidarity, Yasser, you already spoke about um, this binary and that we have to try to think outside of this binary. Um, what do you think about this question of international solidarity in this regard? Un unmute your microphone, Yasser, thank you. Sorry. No, I said that I don't want to sound alarmist, but I will probably will. Um, I think these are apocalyptic times and um, that we are in a very uh, urgent uh, uh, conjuncture. Um, Gramsci used to say in a similar uh, context, the old is dying and the, the, the new cannot be born. Uh, and this is why we see those uh, far-right forces in the West, uh, whether Salvini in Italy or uh, Le Pen in France or uh, Le Pen uh, or uh, Trump here in the U.S., um, filling that void. Or on the other side, uh, either military uh, uh, regimes or ISIS and Al Qaeda. Uh, and it goes back to what I explained earlier: the uh, the, the binary and uh, the mannequin politics. And so again, I will emphasize the need to break that that binary and the need to create alternative. And those alternatives are not just about producing a discourse, but also practices and institu institution uh, that um, will be with us with the second wave, third wave of revolt that we see and suspect um, in, in the coming uh, or emerging in, in the near future. And so some of the things that can be done, as I suggested before earlier, um, the importance of the refugees and their, uh, polit the politics of the refugees, not reducing them to just people in need and providing them shelter and food and education. They're much more than that and they have revolutionary potential. Uh, and the importance of building robust campaign against the, uh, against, uh, the prisons in, in, the, in the region and for the political prisoners and others. Uh, I'm using political prisoners in a large uh, sense. Uh, and finally, in the case of Syria, um, the importance of um, highlighting the lethal politics of reconstruction, oftentimes, uh, as uh, Joseph uh, suggested uh, earlier, those policies can be extremely lethal uh, and they come in different forms, neoliberal or otherwise. 
uh, and they seem to be genuine and uh, about helping the population and so on. And yet they are the continuation many times of war by other means. So I think it's important to raise awareness around um, how um, reconstruction is being implemented in Syria and how the money is being spent and, and raising awareness and, and preventing um, further violence against the Syrian population through reconstruction or what is called reconstruction. Thank you. Same question goes to Joseph. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Um, I think most of the things have been said. Uh, if we're based in uh, Europe or the West opposing uh, our own imperialism, but I think all forms of imperialism should be opposed with the regional or international. This is very important. See solidarity beyond borders. So open the borders, solidarity with refugees, not only on a charity basis, but on a, um, on a universal and revolutionary basis, being for them to being able to work, live, and not survive in the countries where they are. Because it has been said and mentioned many times, and I totally believe it, they have a revolutionary contentions. We can learn from them for their own experiences. Uh, so international solidarity, we believe that our destiny are linked and um, believe that organization from below is the solution in accordance to what we said we mentioned before oppression and exploitation have to be understood together and see how many things can be done and the most important thing i think is learning from the experiences that occurred during the uprising building on it learn from the mistake and authoritarianism is growing everywhere what the, the quote mentioned by yesterday is very true um very much a lot of dangers are growing so we have to be careful and no one uh, can diminish uh, these uh, dangers. Syria reconstruction, very important. Issues of national minorities, issue of political prisoners, issues of reconstruction are, ha have to be dealt in continuously by uh, Syrians and others throughout the world, continue the pressure um, against this regime and against uh, reactionary forces and other imperialist forces. So I will stop there. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Joseph. Um, Frida, uh, what do you think about international solidarity um, and what can be done in this regard? Okay. Um, thank you, everyone. I think we've established that international solidarity, if, it, if it's socialist, cannot be limited to opposing US imperialism or even recognizing that there are other imperialist powers, but that it demands people to people connections on the basis of an affirmative vision that offers an alternative to capitalism, racism, sexism, heterosexism. So for instance, um, we need to ask what, uh, what is it that the struggles of teachers and nurses in, in the rest of the world uh, have in common, for instance, with Iran. Uh, these are struggles not only about issues of pay and income inequality, but also about the alienating working conditions and the reduction of healthcare and education to a mechanical factory system. These are profound questions. We need to, we need to create those connections and follow through on these questions. Uh, we can ask, why is it that in the US, Blacks and Latino, uh, Blacks, Latinos and immigrants are dehumanized as the other, while in Iran, it is the Kurds and Arabs and Afghan undocumented workers. Is it human nature that divides us into self and other, or is it the specific character of our 
socioeconomic system. Uh, we can ask, what does the Me Too movement in the West have in common with the Me Too movement in the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and China? I mean, the Me Too movement is everywhere. How can we come together and overcome the objectification and commodification of women's bodies? Neither liberal capitalism nor social democracy has proved to be the answer. And uh, currently the Alliance of Middle Eastern and North African Socialists has started a campaign in solidarity with feminist political prisoners in the MENA region. We invite listeners to go to our website, make copies of the brochure. It's a beautiful brochure. Distribute it at your events, adopt some of the political prisoners, write about them on your website, talk about them at your meetings, demand their immediate release. These are the people who need to be released so that they can help free their own country. This is a very serious way, I think, of challenging capitalist authoritarianism and its carceral system. Uh, thank you, Frida. Um, so there um, are several questions that the audience has raised. Um, there are several questions on Venezuela, and uh, there are, I think, two or three questions um, on Syria. So um, I would start with the questions regarding Syria, and uh, you can decide, Joseph and Yasser, who wants to respond, or if you want to respond, both of you. Um, so the first question on Syria would be if uh, one speaker could briefly address the opposition of the Kurds in the context of uh, the women-led opposition uh, to the Syrian regime and their key role in military defeats against ISIS. Um, I'm not sure, Yasser, if you want to maybe respond to this question or... Unmute. <laughs> Joseph, you should go ahead. Uh, I'm really sorry, but I will need to leave uh, after, so I will answer quite briefly. If I understood well the, the question regarding the, the stance of the opposition regarding the Kurdish uh, opposition, is this uh, the way it was framed? Right. To address the opposition of the Kurds in the context of the women-led opposition to the Syrian regime. Yeah, to address the opposition of the Kurds, right. Okay. As I said, the, the majority on the far majority opportunity of the Syrian opposition has not uh, acknowledged Kurdish national rights. One of the, um, one example reflecting this is uh, the refusal at the first conference of the opposition in the summer of 2011 in uh, Antalya to change the name of the, the country from the Syrian Arab Republic to the Syrian Republic. And other examples could be shown whether refusing decentralization, but the worst aspect, aspect, uh, aspects of it were the support of a large section of the opposition to the, the occupation of uh, Afrin by uh, Turkish-led reactionary forces and the uh, there's a demographic change ongoing, unfortunately, uh, in, uh, in Afrin that has to be condemned very vehemently. So the vast majority of the opposition followed, especially the, the Syrian National Council and the Etilaf, you know, uh, coalition with the, the Turkish uh, state, supported its policies. Today, there were tweets from the Muslim Brotherhood members um, supporting um, policies against Syrian refugees or practices against Syrian refugees in Turkey. 
and blaming Syrian refugees for it and not the Turkish state. For example, one of its leaders, uh, Mr. Drubi, uh, that can be seen. Uh, when it comes to uh, the today, there's a necessity to defend uh, the self-decimation of Kurdish people and what is called the self-administration without being romanticizing this, uh, this experience. Uh, a lot of people has romanticized a lot this experience uh, showing it as a new Commune de Paris, Paris Commune, or I don't know what. They are, as I said, achievement, but there are problems as well that have to be criticized, notably the like of democratic rights for rivals of the Syrian, Democrat, uh, Syrian democratic forces or the PY-led uh, party, uh, such as also collaboration that occurred with Russian imperialism or US imperialism. So I think this is uh, today our position when it comes to, to women's movement. Uh, all the Kurdish parties have a history of pushing forward uh, women's participation among their parties. Obviously, the PYD has done, to some extent, a good job in their institutions, pushing for uh, an institution being represented by both men and women, nearly equally speaking. Although there have been also stories of uh, using this, uh, these issues. But again, these achievements should not be underestimated and diminished, it's very important. Uh, and it has also set an example for other women throughout uh, Syria, although it's important to remind as well that a lot of women participated in the beginning of the uprising and they were targeted first by the Syrian regime massively through an organized um, campaign of uh, rape campaign, organized rape campaign by the, the regime to target women. Throughout the uprisings in the region, women have been targeted by authoritarian regime, as well as Islamic forces. Um, so I, I would uh, maybe end on this one. And obviously, uh, the, the, the fight against ISIS has to be, uh, it's very important, but also without forgetting, and the end in the end of the Daesh is not still the case, still forms of Daesh organizations still uh, happening in uh, in Syria and Iraq, um, but the amount of destruction that came, for example, in the case of Raqqa, and the destructions and bombing of uh, U.S. Uh, bombing has to be denounced as well. The amounts of civilians, uh, more than thousands of civilians, uh, were murdered in this campaign. So this has to be denounced as well. So again, we have to acknowledge achievements that have been made. Uh, and denounced the refusal of large sections of the Syrian opposition to acknowledge the Kurdish national rights. Uh, and I think it's important to building a new Syria, really in, it, in its, and for all, uh, while not romanticizing the experiences as well of the self-administration. Thank you, Joseph. I know that you have to leave. Um, I just wanted to say that this question was asked by Stephen Durham from the Freedom Socialist Party in New York. Um, and a similar question was asked by Stanley Heller. Um, so he asked, when we talk about resistance to the Syrian regime, what should be said about Kurdish forces and what they call Rojava? And I guess that you just responded to that. Um, if it's okay for you, um, then I'll just go uh, to the next questions. Yeah? Thank you, Joseph, for attending. I know yeah, you have Joseph to. Joseph wants to add anything. I don't know. Right. Um, maybe Yasser, you want to add um, something regarding the Kurdish question? Yasser says no. I'm okay. 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 Um, so 
The next question is raised. There are several questions um, regarding Venezuela. And uh, I think two of them are raised by Stanley Heller. Um, so one is, uh, he asks, uh, what do Simone and Eva Maria think of Code Pink, a weeks long occupation of the Washington DC Venezuelan embassy? Uh, it seemed that they were opposed only by uh, Guaido forces. Um, he says, I never saw the Venezuelan left make a comment. Uh, was their role, uh, was their whole effort a mistake that helped only Maduro is the question or was it worth doing? Um, so the first question is on the occupation of the Venezuelan embassy. Um, uh, sorry, uh, the, yeah, um, you know what I mean, the, the, the action at the uh, Venezuelan embassy. And then the next question is, um, he says the US government claims a huge role of Cuba in the repression and other matters. Uh, what is the public perception in Venezuela? So maybe if we can start with these two questions. Uh, I don't know, Simon or Eva Maria, who wants to uh, take these questions? Eva Maria? Okay, go ahead. I, uh, yeah, I mean, the first thing is to say that I think most of these questions are actually things that Simon can respond better, because a lot of it is about, like, how does uh, Venezuela, like, Venezuelans see a lot of these things, right? Like, I don't actually even know if the Code Pink occupation, they got a lot of attention in Venezuela, and I'm curious about that. Um, it, it's hard for me because like, I don't like, what do I think about that? I mean, I think like, I, I appreciate all efforts against imperialism, right? And against US imperialism. And that was obviously one effort. And I think there was a lot of like, interesting things happening. Um, but at the same time, like, I think Code Pink, um, you know, Sina was actually talking about this too. Like it doesn't speak to the needs of, of how I think anti-imperialism is going to actually succeed. Um, so those are my like real comments around Cuba. Like I, that's another thing that um, it's been said so much there's been so much propaganda around the Cuba question uh, from the right that it's from outside. It's very hard to actually tell what that looks like um, and what is actually going on. And I think there's like actually another question about, there's two questions about Cuba from, there's another one uh, from another person. So obviously it's something that people are thinking about, but I mostly wanna give it up to, um, to Simon to see what he thinks because most of them are about how Venezuelans feel about these things. Thank you. So, Simon, what do you think about the action at the Venezuelan embassy and about the role of Cuba in the repression? Well, uh, let's uh, first um, comment on, on this group Code Pink and in general, what are the, the U.S. groups uh, in the left that support the, the Maduro regime. They are heavily publicized by the Venezuelan government. You have to understand that uh, Venezuelans do get news from, from these groups by the state official TV uh, all the time because uh, they come here as tourists. Uh, they, they go to the best uh, state hotels. 
uh, they are giving this uh, official tourism uh, uh, around around the cities and they make videos well they, they afterwards they say everything in venezuela is great um they see a, a a normal situation they don't see any suffering or hunger or anything so obviously uh, these groups have a um, little or or zero sympathy from uh, common uh, working class people in venezuela because they are seen as simply as, as puppets of the Venezuelan government. We in the left, of course, uh, would never uh, support any of the repressive measures taken by the US government against them. Uh, we, we reject any repression against a, a Chavista group in, in the US. But also uh, we would like uh, for, for activists to, to understand the through which perspective these groups get to be known in Venezuela, which is in a really in a very bad light. Um, that would well, that's what I would comment regarding that. And and uh, regarding the the Cuba question, um, we are in favor of Venezuela uh, developing independent economic and political relations with any country. Uh, defying any uh, intention by the U.S. government or any imperialistic government to say uh, you cannot do commerce with such a country or you cannot come to any agreement with such or such country. In that sense, we, we defend that Venezuela can have relations with Cuba or, or anyone else. But what has been the, the sense of the relation between uh, Venezuela and Cuba, has it been uh, progressive in, in any way? We have to conclude that uh, Cuba, the Cuban government, has been very, very pragmatic in, in the sense that it has seen uh, its Venezuelan allies as suppliers of oil, suppliers of uh, means to, to spread some, some, some influence, but not in order to uh, support any uh, revolutionary movement in Latin America, Cuba ceased to, to support revolutionary movements since about 50 years ago, a very, very long time. And uh, Cuba and Venezuela have uh, joint positions, for example, on Syria, supporting the, the Assad uh, dictatorship. I mean, the, there is little or nothing progressive about that alliance. Uh, there are many exaggerations as to the role of Cuba in, in Venezuela, but it does have a, a role, especially a political role, of putting the prestige of uh, the, the first uh, socialist revolution in Latin America at the service of the Chavista bourgeoisie and even uh, Fidel Castro in, in the first years of the Chavez government in many uh, public speeches, he said that Venezuela should not follow the path of Cuba in the 60s, that Venezuela should not uh, nationalize oil, should not take uh, anti-imperialist uh, measures like stopping, stopping uh, paying the, the foreign debt. So that has been the, 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 the sort of role that uh, the Cuban government has played in Venezuela, not a very progressive one, sadly.
Thank you, Simone. Um, there is also, um, so this question was a kind of a joint question because uh, Stanley Heller asked this question and then also Amina Primavera asked a kind of the same question of the role of Cuba uh, in Venezuela. Um, and there is one last question regarding uh, Venezuela. So um, someone asked, what about the issue of race in Venezuela? Anti-racism was central to the Chavista movement. Um, not initially, but over time, much of the opposition today uh, comes across as vehemently racist. Race is frequently ignored in Latin America when it comes to the experiences of African descendants and the indigenous. Where does race factor into discussions about the future? This would be our last question, actually, um, by the audience. Well, if I can comment quickly, then. Um... I would say that, yes, in, in the first years of the Chavista government, the right-wing opposition used uh, frequently uh, racial, racially motivated attacks against Chavismo, against Chavez. Um, Chavismo took advantage of that in order to, to pose as anti-racist. Yet there are limitations in, in this sense because uh, the anti-indigenous policies we have described, they continued just as they had in, in the previous decades before Chavismo. I mean, the denying of the right to self-governance and uh, to have their own territories, Chavismo continued with these anti-indigenous policies, even saying that if land was given to the indigenous peoples, they would become uh, great landowners. I mean, basically denying the, the basic cultural and political rights of the indigenous peoples. Also, we have to address the fact that uh, the repressive um, operations by these joint military and police operations called Operation for the Liberation of the People, which is a very Orwellian uh, name for which what actually is uh, deploying thousands of troops around a barrio and detaining all young men from 18 to 35 years, um, doing some uh, extrajudicial killings. There have been hundreds in the last uh, couple of years of extrajudicial executions. Uh, who, who are the victims of this Chavista policy? Well, the enormous majority of them are black and brown young men uh, for for example, the, 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 the Black Lives Matter movement and anti-police brutality and anti-racist movements in, in other countries, if they got to know this uh, um, better, they, they would perhaps uh, uh, be moved to, to action in the sense of, of uh, condemning this, this uh, repression. One very uh, awful case was when 12 uh, young men from an Afro-Venezuelan community in Barlovento in 2016 were forcefully disappeared and only after the community protested for days then uh, their bodies were uh, found. Uh, it's only one in, in many cases of uh, tremendous police brutality which has a, a racial uh, element to it even if it's not uh, because of a deliberate uh, racist a policy by the government, but because of the interrelation between class and race, 
uh, these sectors are, are the ones who, who suffer the most from the, the repressive policies of the Venezuelan government. So um, over the, the last years, I think that uh, that more clearly cut division of, of the first years leading up to the 2002 coup, they have, uh, the, these divisions have blurred uh, in a sense, since uh, the majority of Venezuelans oppose the Venezuelan government. And this includes people from the popular sectors and people from the Afro uh, communities and indigenous communities as well. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you very much uh, to everyone. Um, would you like to add anything to the discussion or to the raised questions by the audience? Eva Maria, Yasser, Sina, or Frida? Um, if not, we will just end the panel. Uh, and again, uh, thank uh, Isabel Barter for her technical support and also Fatima Sidi for her technical support. Then also say that this event was hosted by the Alliance of Middle Eastern and North African Socialists. Um, and you can um, go and uh, find the brochure that Frida mentioned or other articles and interviews and statements on the Alliance website. It's allianceofmesocialists.org. Um, and there you also find the email address if you have any questions or comments or critique. We will be more than happy to get in touch with you. Um, thank you very much to Eva Maria, Simon, Yasser, Joseph, Frida and Sina, um, to the Alliance and uh, also to the audience who were very patient. I know it was a long panel, um, almost three hours. So thank you very much everyone and enjoy the rest of the evening. And we hope to stay in touch and keep the conversation. Thank you.